I don't want to scare anyone. But I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there. Some sort of demented creature. Surviving in the wilderness. Full grown by now. Some folks claim they've even seen him. Right in this area. From the cold, chilly cabins of Camp Crystal Lake to outer space. We are Halloweenies. Greetings, everybody, and welcome once again to Halloweenies, a Jason Voorhees podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. Gang, I'm running the data through my computer here. And I am happy to say that none of you listening are dead fucks for listening to this episode. I am one of your co-hosts, Justin Jimbo Gerber. We are leaving Higgins Haven for a house full of wild and horny kids and a home next door occupied by the family Jarvis for the first time. For Friday the 13th, the final chapter. But before we spend this episode discussing the fourth Friday the 13th for June the 13th, let's introduce ourselves and discuss the first time we saw, or even just heard, about Friday the 13th, the final chapter. We should start off with somebody who hasn't uh, been heard uh, around these woods, so as it were, for the last few months. Let's start off with uh, that person. Go ahead. Well, this is Michael Tommy Jarvis Rothman. Yep, still in the big name for myself. Uh, what wow. a surprise. Um, all, the whole name. It, it should be noted that I'm not the Corey Feldman uh, Tommy Jarvis, but uh, the Tommy Jarvis in, uh, that we'll be discovering and discussing in, uh, in August. Um, but, um, you know, I was thinking about this last night, and I actually watched it uh, with a fellow Losers Club member, uh, Dan Flieger. And one of the things I was thinking was, like, I think most of the Friday the 13th movies – um, I, I saw it like on either USA Network or TNT. And so Dan and I were actually kind of bonding over the fact that like these movies we saw like neutered to death for television. And I'm pretty sure Final Chapter was one of them because I, I absolutely remember this being uh, something that I watched solely because I saw Corey Feldman. Um, and, and, you know, growing up loving Stand By Me and Gremlins and, you know, all the movies that he was in, even Lost The Boys. Bad News Bears TV ba- show. Yeah, exactly. Totally. I mean, I had that on, you know, VHS. No, um, but we <laughs> I was just really, you know, drawn into it. And I, so I, I want to say it had to have been like one of those USA Network viewings and not even during like Halloween times. And they, I, mean, I feel like Friday the 13th just plays liberally throughout the year. So who the hell knows when it was, but it was certainly when I was a young age and I was still thinking like Corey Feldman was the coolest person in the world. There was a time where he was the coolest person in the world. I mean, let's be honest. In the, yeah. in the 80s, he was like the coolest guy. Um, let's go now down to the south side. He's uh, Chicago's reopened, but some might say he's even reopened. Who is, who is he? <laughs> this is uh, Mike, the Super Bowl of self-abuse Vanderbilt. God damn it. You stole another one of my jokes later on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favorite character, uh, my, my second favorite Axel that Paramount put out in 1984. Oh, you're, you're stealing all my good notes. <laughs> <laughs> all my good bits. You shouldn't leave your Google Docs open like that. I think it's I really do a shared doc on accident. Is that what happened? <laughs> um, first time I saw this one, I feel like I probably saw it uh, 
on cable when I was a kid. But the only one time I remember watching it was uh, at a friend's birthday party uh, when I was like 11 or 12. Uh, I was always I always thought it had the coolest box art, though. It was always mm -hmm. my favorite of the Friday the 13th Part 4 uh, box art with the knife and the mask, which is, um, interesting enough, not the theatrical poster. I think that was made just for home video. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Vanderbilt, Mike had mentioned something about watching these on USA and TNT and, or some other basic cable stuff. Do you have any memories of doing that for this particular movie, or was this more of a home video rental? This one I don't remember being on USA a lot. I remember USA usually being one, two, and three, and five. Because mm -hmm. sometimes they wouldn't show all of them. No, and they still don't. <laughs> and sometimes they'll show, like, I think we talked about this on the last podcast, maybe, uh, where they'd show them out of order. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Like they'd show three, two, and then one. I, but yeah, I feel I, like, I feel like um, ABC had the rights to the final chapter. Because I seem to rem I remember them showing that, like, on the Sunday night movie uh, or something along those lines in the late 80s or early 90s. I have fond memories of CBS or ABC showing like Alien and The Dead Zone yes. on Sunday nights. Like those were the, the good old days where you get around with the family and watch a little Johnny Smith or a little Ellen Ripley running around. Yeah, my, my, like memory, uh... my memory of the, um, I'll just jump in once again. My memories of this movie are actually home video because I think like you said, there would, there would be marathons on USA specifically. And I feel like they had the rights to all the original eight Paramount movies except for four and six. And I wonder if there was a popularity yes. issue. And that's why well, it was harder to find? I know for a fact that 6 definitely aired on ABC because I watched it on a late, late movie on a Friday night when I was like 12. And that, was one of, that wasn't the first time I saw it, but it was the first time I really sat down and like, I think I taped it even. Hmm. So it was, kind of, it was like a double showing of Roseanne right into the, <laughs> the, the two-hour expanded cut of Jason Lives. I can imagine. I can imagine it. Speaking of... Speaking of um, uh, Roseanne, I don't know. I've, no transition. <laughs> Who is the final person on this episode? This is Mackenzie Gordon Gerber. Ooh, uh, can't wait to talk Gordon and all things dogs on this, the final chapter. Uh, the first time I watched this film, probably way too young. Can't remember. Definitely on TV. Definitely on cable. Uh, definitely edited. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so I feel you there, Mike. Um, I just remember loving this one. You know, whenever there, if you're a kid, and if you're certainly around the age of uh, Tommy Jarvis, and you're watching all these movies for the first time, of course you're going to connect. You're going to love The Lost Boys. You're going to love, you know, <laughs> Fright Night. You're going to, you know, all the movies that deal with like kids dealing with monsters. And this uh, takes the cake. Uh, I, I, I just loved. Everything about Tommy from the mask making to more. And obviously we'll get into that as we move forward. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Watched it yesterday. Took a lot of great notes. Uh, had a blast. Definitely one of my faves. So Before we move along, I do want to say this has been a great run working with you guys. I can't believe that Halloween has already come to an end with it being the final chapter and all. Yeah, so too bad. I mean. really, I'm really looking forward to this episode. You know, well, it was, we'll, it was we'll strange. We'll discuss what we're going to do over the next six months, but we've got time to think about it, I think. Yeah, I, I was. Well, you know, it's just I just want to speak to the fans. You know, if if there was a lot of backlash against these kinds of podcasts uh, about horror, and we just felt like this was the way to go out. Yeah, wait, we wait. Hold on, hold on, everybody stop! Everybody stop! Everybody stop! I'm getting a word over the wire that there are. Oh my God! There's eight more movies. 
<laughs> and here I thought it was all over. And we had all those discussions and all those fights about, well, you know, we did spend a whole year with Halloween, a whole year with Freddy. How are you going to have a whole year of Jason when there's only four movies? But, you know, we, we decided that we wanted to go camping uh, and we brought the Mallows. But, hey... The more the merrier, right? I, I'm, well, I'm, the only problem, Mike, is now what are we can do with all those excellent eight episodes of Saw that we did for the rest of the year. <laughs> well, we just bank them, or hey, we guess can what? keep them for next year. Good news: uh, the the Saw sequel, Spiral, is going to be pushed to 2021. So it looks like all those episodes that we had banked and recorded, and absolutely not joking about it, uh, are going to be ready and primed for the the great year of 2021 um i, I liked when we, we none of us were available so vanderbilt did that four hour monologue for saw four oh uh, yeah i can't wait for people to hear next april i mean it's going to be an exciting time i think for everybody. well we also had that really cool interview with tobin bell in which he i think he spent like 45 minutes talking about seinfeld and i was like look hey i want to talk about seinfeld until you know the the cows come home but we got to talk about your, you know, your your time with Jigsaw, and he just didn't really want to talk about it. So um, we got to talk about his time with Jigsaw. <laughs> we got to talk about his entries in the Book of Saw. And I'm, I'm, I'm over here talking about that X Files episode where he was uh, smoking cigarettes and killing people. Wait a minute, he's in more of the Saw movies than the first one. I thought he was dead. That's a great point, Mike. But we'll have to get to all that in 2021. Oh yeah. You know, it's sad though. I feel like some people might actually think we're serious. Oh, I know. Like, I know. Like the eight Saw movies. What an awful year. What a miserable year. That Ooh, would be. Yeah. It'd be as bad as 2020. <laughs> yeah, that would be the comparison. Everything's resolved except we have to do the Saw episodes. Yeah. That's the, that's the uh, comeuppance. Ugh. That's the penance. Kill me now. Oh, my God. Well, listen, before we get into our next category, I'd like to say that the first time I remember watching this movie was um, renting it. And I vividly remember the back of the box is of Jason's like black fingernail. Um, getting close to um, oh, what's his name? Is it Rob? Is he the the hunk? Doug. Oh, no. oh, Doug. Doug. Rob is the brother of Sandra. I'm sorry. Yeah. And um, there's also a little picture below that of Corey Feldman in one of the like the white alien masks. But they had like the weirdest selection of, of pictures. <laughs> for really the really mis- misleading. Art. So, so but I kind of like how misleading it all was mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, except for obviously the Halloween mask was Jason. very misleading on the back of that box. Very confusing <laughs> stuff. Uh, well, anyway, listen, let's, we got to move on to our next category. I'm seeing it from far away, and, and it's brown luster. There's thumbtacks, but there aren't a lot of uh, notes under the thumbtacks, and I'm talking about Steve Christie's bulletin board. Hello? Who's that? Oh, hi. What are you doing out in this mess? All right, well, really not a lot of news, um, but there's definitely some sad news right off the bat. We've talked about them a decent amount over the last couple months on this podcast, but uh, Ron Kurtz, who wrote Friday the 13th Part 2 and apparently did some uncredited writing on the uh, script for the original, passed away from heart failure at the age of 79 years old. So uh, rest in peace, Ron Kurtz. I'm not sure if anybody wanted to say anything about that. I mean, uh, created a hell of an entry. For us, you know, yeah, definitely, yeah, totally. definitely appreciate Solid it. Entry. I mean, he continued the series, right? I mean, he's he has big big boy Jason running around killing people. If it wasn't for him, you know, if if that movie ended up being a total dud, then we wouldn't be talking about the franchise today. You yeah. know what I mean? Agreed, agreed. Ron, uh, this this cup of coffee I'm drinking, I salute you. Any uh, any words? Mike on, on, on Ron Kurtz? Mike Vanderbilt? He seemed like a fun dude in that uh, documentary. 
See, like yeah. he was good for a laugh. You know, seventy nine is a is a good age. Yeah. If I live to be seventy nine, and and he's survived by his wife and kids, good for you, Moron Kurtz. Uh, nice, nice little horror slasher legacy you're leaving behind as well. So re- again, rest in peace. And uh, in more, uh, I guess, celebratory news, something else happened since our last episode recording and drop, and that is Friday Thirteenth turned forty. Yeah. It's great time to celebrate <laughs> turning 40. Great times we're all living in. So well, maybe we'll celebrate the 41st anniversary and do something, and do something next year. But uh, I celebrated Friday 13th turning 40 by um, not watching Friday 13th yeah. for the third time this year. <laughs> I promise I'll watch it again next year. But, uh, you know, we do have a lot to talk about for this episode. Any other news that I might have missed along the way? I mean, you know, I I mean, Vanderbilt and I always talk about this, but whenever there's an anniversary, you're always going to get this like onslaught (laughs) of crazy takes and all, you know, things considered. But uh, there was one that really caught my eye um, that was uh, published on Generosity that went all in on how like Friday the 13th has to do with like homeless horror. And... yeah, hmm. it's worth a read. Um, it's it would require put that in the show notes. I want to see that. It, it's pretty wild, um, but it, it's because it's written by someone who actually works with uh, a lot of like homeless men and homeless women, and um, it is just it's an interesting read. And I didn't actually <laughs> consider that uh, while watching these movies, but um, probably hmm. the most unique take that I saw in the entire you know anniversary uh you know run of articles that were out there um but you know peak take <laughs> when, when is you it could, a, is, it a is, it? Con, is it a condemnation on the series or is it just a take on like wh- who jason is or something like that or what is it? no I, I think there's a lot of just like weird like illusions uh that, that he kind of talked about and um you know like here's a here's a blurb i'll read the Friday the 13th franchise generally isn't considered part of the homeless horror genre that I wrote about in a previous column. Homelessness doesn't directly <laughs> impact any of its characters or feature strongly in any of its plots, with one minor exception. That's the end of the article. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? <laughs> in, Friday, no, I'm kidding. Go ahead. in Friday the 13th Part 3, a presumably homeless character named Abel makes a brief appearance. He stumbles yes. across a corpse keeps part of it as a souvenir and then warns a group of teenagers to stay away from Camp Crystal Lake. Meanwhile, in a 1987 episode of the Friday the 13th television series, the plot revolves around someone who has been killing homeless people to steal their life force and remain young forever. I mean, it goes from there. Um, there is a lot of uh, crazy illusions that uh, he puts on there. It's a, it's a pretty lengthy sto- uh, story. Um, of course, of at course least by today's uh, you know, standards. But um, I will share it on our socials. I think it's worth a read. I think it's, a, it's kind of a cool perspective on the on the franchise that i never in a million years would have thought of um, well did they just mention the, the the fact that jason himself is homeless i think that's I, that, that was i mean that's like one of the, the more running errors of it is because i mean but then again i think you can make we that argument with everyone home. we all saw his home in the yeah. he does have a shack that's right yeah it's and true. also i think like you know looking forward and uh, into like the well i'll go look back just because i don't want to spoil anything but in like the past episodes uh, or past uh, films I mean, you do have like characters like Crazy Ralph and stuff who ostensibly live. I guess he doesn't live on the street because he has a no, wife. No, he's married. So, no, he's yeah, got yeah, a wife. Ralph is married. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I guess you he's really don't home. have too many drifters <laughs> running around and stuff like that. But either way, I'll share it. Just thought I'd put it out there because this is how barren the Friday the 13th news is. 
God. I'm so waiting for LeBron to drop another Instagram story or something. That's it. Yeah. That's all we got. Yeah. So homeless horror is the new subcategory that everybody wants to be an expert in. Yeah. This is like so the aquatic. Well, this is the new so aquatic horror. horror. Oh yeah. Well, homeless horror, Mike, would be like Madman, right? Madman with vagrant. Oh, probably. totally. Uh, the burning. The burning. The vagrant, right? Category. The vagrant. Um, uh, how, uh, yeah, Rob Zombie's yeah. Halloween Two, uh, which uh, features Michael Myers. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Michael Myers. Oh, yeah. yeah, Street Trash. Oh street yeah, Trash. Yes, the, yes. Uh, oh, that the Wanderer. Yeah, The Wanderer. Uh, that'll be an interesting subcategory. Actually, I mean, this, listen, we could do a subcategory for literally everything in the Maybe world. Maybe that'll be next but, season. Uh, and the theme song is uh, Another Day in Paradise by Phil Collins. Oh, uh, oh Jesus, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and then wait, would the end credits be like Runaway Train or something like that yeah. by Soul Asylum? <laughs> But speaking of H's, it's time to move on to our next category that we call Higgins Haven. I can't get this door open. There's something behind it. Oh, I smell something burning. Here, take this. Let me do it. No wonder somebody put this chair there. Something is burning. Lights aren't working either. Oh, real smart. What's going on here? All right, so everybody, I'm gonna I'm gonna give like the big rundown. Okay. And when I'm done, when I, when, I, when I offer up a breath for myself, a breath of air, uh, please feel free to, to jump in with anything I might have missed, with anything, hey, maybe I even got something wrong. You never know. Nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, oh, Rothman sounds very uh, pessimistic. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I think it's great. Um, I think that's yeah, a smart okay, way to we'll do it. We'll see what this guy does. Look, we're in okay. quarantine. We have to do that. It's, Wait, here we know. go. Here we go. All right, so it, we'll start from the beginning here. So Friday Thirteenth Part Three actually made fifteen million more dollars than Friday Thirteenth Part Two. Wow! I'm talking about a 175 percent increase by my Gerberlytics, <laughs> not by calculations. I'm pretty sure that's correct. <laughs> so, um, but you know, as we all know, as, as we've learned, especially over uh, recent years, uh, people who run the movie industry are weird people. So, <laughs> despite making a lot of money, uh, producer Frank Mancuso Jr. He wanted to move on from the series. Well, there's a couple reasons why he wanted to move on and why Paramount wanted to move on. He felt he wasn't getting a lot of credit for the success of the franchise. And I'm not talking about critical success like Paramount's The Godfather. I'm talking about money. The movie, the, these franchise, this franchise was making some serious money at a very low cost. And then the other side of the things were that the slasher phenomenon that had been going on for about five years or so, really, was allegedly starting to die out uh, pardon my pun <laughs> so uh paramount said all right let's really end it this time we'll call it the final chapter and then they the big thing here though of course is that they brought back a makeup effects icon tom savini who did the makeup of course for the original dawn of the dead uh, uh, maniac at this point right and some other some mm-hmm. other projects uh, you know at least in high profile wise and so they wanted to bring him back and they did to help kill off jason once and for all and as we mentioned earlier, they lied again. Uh, but we'll talk about that later on in the episode. So uh, another important uh, tidbit, though, this is the first film that Steve Miner was not involved in in any capacity. As a matter of fact, he has yet to return to the franchise at all since. He, it's hard to find him talking about the movies, by the way, for us as a side note. But there is actually a video of him talking to students about his work on Friday the 13th part two. Interesting. Yeah. I, I haven't, f- I've found the video of the a little video of the class, I think, but it, I'd like to see like the whole lesson about it. Uh, so that'd be a pretty interesting thing to, to go back and, and try to find and, and, and check out. Well, I, I'd like to imagine that he's cause you know, he, he cameos as a teacher in uh, Halloween H2O. 
So I'd like to You're imagine right. he's teaching these children at the same academy that's in uh, you know, Summer Glen, California uh, for, for that entry. But I, I feel like Steve Miner was the bridge work between Hitchcock and M. Night Shyamalan in terms of appearing in, <laughs> in his own movies. Yeah. Um, and so Miner would not be involved. So the producers reached out to another director, uh, Joseph Zito, who had achieved some success earlier, a couple years earlier, actually, in the same genre. Not the homeless uh, genre. <laughs> if you watch this movie, you'll know that the, the, the killer is not homeless. 1981's The Prowler, which also featured the work of... Tom Savini. Tom Savini, that is correct. All right. Now, this is somebody whose career is uh, what I like to call a Mike Vanderbilt staple. Because this guy worked in some genre uh, high trash. And I mean that as a compliment. We're talking about the Chuck Norris movies, Invasion USA, Missing in Action... <laughs> He even did a Delta Force movie without Chuck Norris in 2000. Uh, But most importantly, and there's a teaser trailer for this online, he was going to direct. Ah, yes. He was going to direct Spider-Man. Mike Vanderbilt, do you have a little more information about that? I'm putting you on the spot. Um, So Canon owned the rights to Spider-Man. And uh, there's plenty of stories about this online. You can... I'll paraphrase. They had an idea for Spider-Man, but they had him actually being a spider who was part man. Oh, my The Lord. script was really wild. Like, uh, who was it? Uh, Golan and Globus had never... They did not know what Spider-Man was. They just knew that it was a hot commodity to own. And uh, Toby Hooper was once involved. Um, and, of course, uh, Joseph Zito was involved and they shot like a short teaser trailer to kind of this is something canon did this it's, it's similar to what uh sean cunningham did with friday the 13th they would just shoot a, a trailer with some stock footage or put an ad in variety yep. and try and raise some money to get this thing made now interesting enough they once made an ad for masters of the universe 2 yep in variety which never got produced and the sets that are used in cyborg the Albert Pion, Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle were supposed to be used for Master Universe 2 and Spider-Man. Oh, my God. Correct. And here's something oh, really here's something really bizarre. It In TV Guide, in listings for Cyborg, yes. and little, I don't know if people remember TV Guide. Let, let, let's break it down for the audience. <laughs> there were <laughs> these little mini magazine books that would have the times of TV shows. This is before you, know, you could turn your TV on and find out what was going to be coming on. Anyway. I can't believe we actually have to explain that to some people. I know. Isn't that crazy? But if you watch Cyborg, if you watch Cyborg, knowing that, infor- knowing that information. For, um, yeah, but here, no, here's the thing, Mike. The description for Cyborg would say Masters of the Universe yes. 2 Cyborg. Oh, my God. So and when you to, watch, the si- Yeah, and when you watch Cyborg, you can tell like there's a lot of streets that are obviously supposed to be New York City or sets that are supposed to be New York City. And sets that look like kind of the wasteland of Eternia that would be in Master Universe too. And I, I think Albert Pion like wrote the script in a couple days and then shot Cyborg over the course of like a week or two. Well, oh, watching like the movie, was... watching the movie, you'd never know it. <laughs> <laughs> Albert Pion also, I believe, was attached for uh, to Spider Man at one point. Yes, sure he was. If, if I I, he was kind of an in house canon guy. I look, think, the cast he could crank stuff out pretty fast. The cast for this is pretty good. Um, they had Tom Cruise in discussion for the lead role. Yeah. Um, Bob Hoskins as Doc Ock. Stan Lee wanted to play J. Jonah Jameson. And then Academy Award snubbed actress Lauren Bacall, um, who should have won for The Mirror Who Has Two Faces. Um, as was, Doctor Doom. Was gonna, oh yeah, as Doctor Doom. was going to be Aunt May. And then Peter Cushing 
was going to be quote unquote a sympathetic scientist, which might have been the most miscasting there. Um, and then um, <laughs> I guess it just didn't happen. <laughs> um, I think it was, all was for notoriously best. for stuff not just not happening. Yeah, it, yeah. It, like it, you said, that would have been probably the, late. 80s when they were really because uh, like they shut down Master of the Universe like before they even finished it because they ran out of money and they were they were just about done. Well, that's why the question. final fight scene in Masters of the Universe is is all shot in the dark. If you watch that yeah. fight scene, oh god, that's so pathetic. I, I, well, here's a question um, though: If Tom Cruise does this, it, it, his career's over, right? Well, it depends on if it was a James Cameron project, right? Like well, who's he, directing it? This, he, I don't think he would have done the Albert Pion version of Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Well, I have a question. They would have had Charles Bronson in it. Yeah, go ahead, Mac. Uh, yeah, um, so Zito ended up directing this film, right? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Such an ass. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I guess the bad news, Mac, we're, we are still on tangent talk here because guess what? There is some conflicting information. I can't confirm it. Some people say he did. Some people say he did not. But allegedly, he directed the music video for Alice Cooper's He's Back, The Man Behind the Mask for Jason Lives music video. Um, but we're going to have to listen. Now, we'll have to save, we will be... save that for August. We'll save that for mm-hmm. the Jason Lives discussion. We'll, be, we'll come okay. back to that. We'll definitely come back to that. So with Zito, though, he, he um, allegedly came up with the story ideas with a, a Phil Scuderi. Now, Phil Scuderi has some ties to the crew of Friday the 13th. Does anybody know the only other credit on IMDb that Phil Scuderi has? He was one of the money men for the first Friday the 13th, yes? Yep, and he was in Here Come the Tigers, directed mm. by Sean S. Cunningham, a wow. precursor to Friday the 13th. Ultimately, they involved uh, Barney Cohen, who officially gets credit as the sole screenwriter. Um, God bless the WGA. Sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> the Rise Guild of America. Cohen went on to create the syndicated vampire series Forever Night, which I would see commercials for all the time on Fox. Did not see one second of. Well, here's the thing with Forever Night. Forever Night was based off of a pilot called Nick Knight that aired on CBS in the late 80s that starred Rick Springfield as a vampire cop who lived in the back of a 57 Chevy in the trunk. And then it Mm. took years for him to actually, it was meant as a pilot for a television show, took years for him to do it. And then when it finally came on, it went to syndication and it would air on CBS like at midnight on Sundays. So I don't think anybody ever watched Forever Night. It was, yeah, it was one of those shows that it was kind of like Renegade with Lorenzo Lamas, <laughs> you know, just kind of, oh, there it is. It's on. It's 1130 at night. And, and there it is. Um, he also uh, was a very important, speaking of horror, uh, he was a consultant and wrote, uh, I think, the pilot for Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Which is a show a lot of people watch, including myself, because uh, I love that talking cat. So hey, You know, talking cats, we'll be talking about... Maybe some talking dogs later on in this episode, so keep an eye out for Can't that. Can't wait. Can't well, wait. So let's talk. So if anybody has anything else to add to the history of this, we can, but I'd like to kind of talk about uh, a little bit of a Zito, a Zito flourish that he would, they, they kind of put on this movie. Does anybody want to talk about the direction or even the writing that, that's going on in this movie compared to earlier or even later entries? I think what's interesting about this is um, it kind of goes into my whole uh, chaos theory of, of, of success in pop culture. Uh, the fact that, like, you know, Paramount um, was basically like, hey, you know, Zito, if you want to write and direct this, uh, we'll give you money. And then he funneled the money over to Cohen is kind of great. And and you look at some of the stuff that, like, Cohen and Zito were coming up with for this movie, it, it's, it's balls to the wall crazy. Like, it should have just 
absolutely destroyed this movie. I mean, like at one point, like I think in earlier drafts, like Rob, would, uh, you know, was hunting for his sister was supposed to have like Jason tracking technology, which would have been fucking ludicrous. Um, there was there was like um, a point where I think Jason was supposed to be like fondling uh, Trisha's breasts, and like they're like, and then Zito was like, no, he needs to be like more. That makes him too human. So they thankfully took that out. Um, but I think you know, despite all those crazy flaws and obviously some maybe rewrites that happen, um, you know, last minute, I want to say this is the strongest screenplay of the entire franchise. I, I, I maybe that's too much of a hot, to- a hot take, but, um, mm. I just think that it's really, really succinct and, and cohesive, especially given the sprawling cast and like where everyone is in terms of like location. Um, I just think it's really, I just really think it's tight. Um, I don't and- know. Yeah, and I, I had to say it's probably he's probably one of the most talented off the bat directors mm-hmm. to handle a Friday the Thirteenth movie, Joseph Zito. And um, here's an interesting tidbit going to that: uh, Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter, has its roots in Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival, because that's where Joe Zito went with a reel and ended up getting the uh, deal to do the Prowler and eventually Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter. Well, it's also there's like a three year there's a three year break between the Prowler and in the final chapter for some reason I thought it was like just you know a year earlier but he was I guess looking for work in that interim which is curious for that time period well also adding to the chaos is the fact that like this was originally supposed to come out in October of 84 and the fact that they like (laughs) rushed five months well yeah I mean they saw like Paramount and some people saw dailies of it and they're like holy shit this is really good let's let me let's like really help you getting this edited so I guess they rented out a house in Malibu (laughs) Uh, and just fucking like worked around the clock to make sure it could meet that April deadline. And granted, like the shooting had already gone over. So like, I mean, this is just it, the whole chaos behind this movie should have resulted in a, just a total flop. But like, to me, it's just, it's like a perfect distillation of the entire like Jason, it, like ethos and you know what it would be like as a franchise. So like, it's, it's, it, that's what I love about pop culture sometimes. Like I always bring up like talking heads uh, once in a lifetime. I think I've used this example like six times in like between podcasts of losers. Club I don't think I've heard this. What's, what's your well, like, example? Well, with that, it's, it's this, the idea that like, it's one of the greatest songs of all time. Right. But the thing with the conception of that song, it really shouldn't have been because the band really didn't even work together on it. They, they, they just kept like, you know, recording bits and pieces separately. And then it came together as this like timeless iconic song. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I I always, I always think of that in terms of chaos. It's just like the pieces all came together in a way that were meant to be. But when you look back at how they came together, it doesn't make sense. Like, you know, Mike, it's kind of like the, uh, the wire, all the pieces matter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you walk through the Camp Crystal Lake. <laughs> um, you better watch your back because Jason might be there. Yeah, oh, God. Uh, um, something else that we always talk about. Um, well, Mac, obviously, do you have anything to add to the, the Joseph Zito touch that he made in this before I move on to something else? Uh, you know, just that they were the kids were given license to kind of do their own thing. You know, like there's a script there, but... Uh, I love when directors let let kind of the the life breathe on this on the on the take. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, I feel like you, I can only you imagine feel that throughout the whole movie. Yeah. Sticking to the script, you know what I mean? I feel oh like gosh, yeah, no joke. Well, that's actually something I talked about with Joe Bob Briggs back in April uh, on the lead up to the last driving season. 
for uh, halfway to Halloween month. Uh, I asked him what was his favorite Friday the 13th movie. And, you know, he acknowledged that the original one is his favorite, but he really praised Final Chapter. And uh, one of the things we talked about was, you know, the, the characters and just how it's so hard to actually write good characters within the limitations and confines of a horror script. You know, I mean, you have to get from beat to beat. You have to get to the next kill. You have to set up the kills. You have to, I mean, there's just so much at, at you know, that you have to kind of put together. So when it comes to, you know, uh, f- fleshing out a cast, especially one as uh, sprawling as the final chapter, uh, you know, he, he kind of praised the work here. And, and, and we actually talked about how similar it was to um, the naturalism of a, like a Linklater film. Uh, and, I, and I suggest that to him. And he was, he was like, he agreed. He was like, yeah, it does actually feel that way. And I think even just from the onset, um, especially when you get past uh, all the stuff at the, the, the hospital, um, and you just get with the kids and the family, there is a naturalism to this cast that feels uh, more in line with the original one. Um, and just how like everyone kind of just gets to be themselves. They don't really try to fall too much in the tropes. Um, and and, and they, could just, they could just be human beings. And I, and I think that's something to appreciate with this one. And, and while they're not all you know, great character, you know, great people, um, I do end up caring about them, and I, I don't know. I think that's a, a pretty good button, uh, or at least a bookend to what the uh, the original one uh, set out to do. Um, and and that's not dismissing anything in, in you know two and three, but I, I just think the characters mean a lot more in the same way that they do in the first one. But you know, that's my own. But that's just my two cents. Here's the thing, though, about that. I don't doubt like the realism of the characters, but I think that this is the movie where you kind of start to actively dislike the victims. Really? Yeah, I think there's some people in this movie that are absolutely they suck. As well, people. yeah, like, no, and, but they and, do. But I'm just and saying. that's the first time I can really remember saying that. Like, you couldn't say that about a lot of people in the first few movies. Even like Shelley, compared to some of the people in this movie, does not quote unquote like deserve to to, to die. No, 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 no. I mean, do. look. I mean, I acknowledge this before, but they're definitely characters that are scumbags and schmucks, and and you definitely don't really <laughs> scoff or bat an eye when they die. Um, but I, I, what I'm trying to stress is more just like the naturalism, the realism here, and it's something that I feel falls wayside uh, once you move on past uh, this sequel. I, I, I don't think you really ever get a cast of characters that feel this... Uh, feel this alive this real this lived in um yeah. that they do here uh, I, it just seems like this is the end of it and then that, that and next ones and you know five six going on they all kind of fit into some sort of tropes um and and, and for good reasons i mean I, I think that they're you have to move on from it but there is something that seems more in sync with the original here i i can see where you're coming from with that mac i do have a question for you um, compared yeah. to the exploding credits of part two, how do you feel about the exploding credits uh, for the final chapter? You know, I was uh, I was kind of taken aback because the I know it's funny that the mask has the indentation from where you know uh, at the end of part three where he yeah, gets chopped in the head, but the fa- the mask itself doesn't have any of the red dashes on it. It looks very faded. So you think that maybe they're trying to say maybe time passed. Uh, they weren't oh thinking about any of this when they I did this. Think about this but is I'll t- tell you podcast, right now. Folks. <laughs> but I was just saying, like it was, it was very interesting. Uh, it it 
it, it was you know something new uh, it's the fight it's the end it's the final chapter we gotta blow this thing up and obviously that was a precursor to joseph zito's blowing stuff up and missing in action invasion usa and that delta force movie without <laughs> chuck norris in 2000 you know speaking um, of those we, credits wait, though, are we I, getting... oh, I just want to say ahead. i hate the way that the friday the 13th logo is in the mask i just think it looks stupid and cheap I think that's the first time we've got the actual font that we're all familiar with, right? For the right. Friday 13th? Yeah. That, that was but I do love the, sw- the swoosh of the final chapter as it exposed the mask. That swoosh is what makes it. You know, I'm a sucker for Unity, so I kind of wish that they all began with the classic, bold, gray Friday the 13th logo just zooming in and smashing in that plate glass. Uh, because... I don't know. There, there is like a, a minimalism to it. And then you could have had the subtitle afterwards where there was like, you know, the final chapter or 3D or um, and then that could have been the way that you you have some sort of, um, you know, difference there. But I don't know. It, it, it could have been nice to keep that uh, that unity, even if it would have even if it wouldn't have worked in some of the more future ones. I mean, it, it probably would have kept it looking a little more. Vintage, I think that was Marcy, right? I don't know. Yeah. I, I would have liked it. And even though it wouldn't have worked for some, well, actually no, maybe it wouldn't have worked, but there's got to be a fan edit out there somewhere. But I'd like, I'd like kind of, eh, whatever. It probably wouldn't have worked with the disco theme. Zach, were you going <laughs> to say something too? Well, I was just going to ask if, are we going to move, are we moving into the beginning of the movie or do we, are, Oh, not yet. Are we going to wait till we'll, we we'll talk know. about the characters because, uh, I've got stuff to say, obviously, but um, if we're if we're not, then uh, I also have some well, many questions hold that, hold about that the thought. time and place. <laughs> hold that thought, Mac. I think you said the magic words though, because it is time to move on to our next category, which is time and place. What the hell is that? Humanoid. Organic composition is unclear. Can someone tell me what's on his face? Uh, some kind of 20th century carbon filtration unit. It's a hockey mask. Hi, welcome back to Halloweenies, Jason Vavori's podcast. And this section is called Time and Place. Every episode, we have tried to, to, to mark down where and when the movie takes place. So as of, as of right now, going into this movie, we believe it takes place in 1985 because parts two and three take place around the same, I mean, they're on the same week. And we know it's five years after the events of part one which came out in 1980, okay? So we know that, right? Now we can go into yeah. the movie. Now we can go into the movie. Right. Go ahead, so, Matt, did you got something? <laughs> yeah. So the, the first one takes place in 1980? As far as we know. So why the hell does, Miss, why the hell does Mrs. Voorhees Gravestone say 1979? <laughs> Incredible. This is a, huge, this is a game changer. But I, th- I think I have a theory on that that I just came up with. Okay. You don't hear about Mrs. Voorhees in any of the intro in the original Friday the 13th, which takes place in 1980, right? Let's say that's true. Maybe that gravestone, maybe uh, she was assumed to be dead. No, I don't think so. No, Poo-poo your idea, but Steve Christie, like when he sees her in the woods, he's like, oh, hey, what are you doing out here? He Ah, would have a totally different reaction if she thought... She was supposed to have been dead. So well, this also is the first time we're seeing the graves graveyard. I mean, we've seen it in past centuries. So wouldn't they have just slowly panned over and shown the the Voorhees grave in in, in those? I think it's 1979, and I think because we think sorry guys when um uh, the movie was filmed right in 1979, 
So I think at the end of the day, it was actually supposed to take place in 1979, which means that the events of parts two, three, and four do not take place in 1985, but they take place in 1984, which also means that for the first time since the first one, <laughs> we are in the present. We are not in the future. So we Unless are it takes place in 1980, because then the first one takes place in the future, because it was shot in 79, right? Yeah, but we know Pamela Voorhees <laughs> died in 79, right? And that's the right. that's so now we have to assume that the first one takes place in seventy nine and it's been five years since then, so now it's nineteen eighty four. Yeah, because also, according to IMDb, the film, that being final chapter, takes place on Sunday the fifteenth and beyond. While the beginning with the coroners takes place during the night of Sunday the fifteenth, the rest of the film takes place on Monday the sixteenth, with Tuesday the seventeenth being the climactic night. And I need Advil. So that means that Friday the 13th Part 2 does take place on a Friday the 13th, according to that. Well, at, at some point, Friday the 13th Part 2 or 3 is on Friday the 13th, obviously. Yes. It has to be. Yeah, because yeah. uh, 2 and 3 and 4, they take place over five days then? Oh, Jesus. I think it's about that. I, we could work it out. Like, We'll get to that in a second because I've got some <laughs> other questions about newspapers and stuff like that. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> oh yeah, something else very it. important, though. This is the first time in that Tombstone Mac that you mentioned we learned her first name was Pamela. Mm. That's not established in earlier movies, just as Mrs. Voorhees. <laughs> I also want to mention that the gravestone is like front and center. It's like, Pamela, come on. <laughs> let's, come, why don't you, let's put you right here. Right in front of, right next to the road, so people can see you clear as day as they drive by, or happen to just miraculously stop right in front of the gravestone while they're driving. I like they Pretty pause great. for a second too, like, ah, oh, here's where are we going? Oh, why is there a graveyard on the side of the road? Well, yeah, and there's no, there's no mention of it. You know what I mean? It's like not that the kids know anything. It's totally for the audience, which is just, it's just so funny. To be fair about the graveyards on the side of the road, Mike, if you've ever driven through <laughs> small town America, uh, w- which I had, uh, had to do many times uh, going from Tallahassee to South Florida or Tallahassee, Atlanta, you see these creepy ass graveyards just like literally spilling into the highway. I don't know why, but yeah. Oh, really? No, oh, I, I, no, no doubt. It, it's more just the fact that Miss Voorhees' gravestone yeah. is like, it, and it clearly looks like totally different from all the other gravestones mm-hmm. that are there. Like, like, like oh, we're just it looks relatively oh, new. This doesn't really, this doesn't look like the other ones. But uh, okay, let's uh, throw yeah. it here, right in the front. Well, listen, <laughs> as we learned from Jason Lives, uh, deleted alternate ending. Uh, I think Elias Voorhees, her husband, <laughs> probably uh, put some some decent bank for that tombstone. That's why yeah. it was so popular. Oh, maybe, maybe. Um, something else before we get into newspapers is I, I I'm sure everybody agrees is. Once again, they did not have to do this, but the continuity is so strong between the ending of part three and this movie, and it's been two years. Like, we're back at Higgins Haven. Jason is in the same pose as he is at the very end of part three. Like, they really are once again trying to, to connect these movies. And even one cop says um, seven kids and three bikers were found dead there, and that's correct. Those are the seven people and, and three bikers that were found there, so... The well, Zito, I was going to ask that on uh, picking up right after three. He didn't want any mystery as to you know where Jason was going from point A to point B, so he just literally picks up right where three left off. Uh, and and then as he mentioned in the in the uh, interviews on you know Crystal Lake Memories, he was you know kind of happy about teasing the fact that Jason doesn't come back immediately. Like you know it takes you know five ten minutes for him to come back. 
as opposed to you know like Halloween two where we get Michael almost immediately. When <laughs> yeah, right. He also didn't want the uh, flashback Zito. Yeah, Zito felt that that was unnecessary. Oh, the, I like the, the flashback. The oh, so do I. I so really I. like that flashback. See, that's, that's I so have good. a problem. I have a problem with the flashback because I understand that for audiences back then, and even though this is the fourth and the final one, why would you go see this if you hadn't seen the first three? <laughs> but uh, the flashback, I was watching it, and I was, I was really trying to watch it as if I'd never seen it before, and it really kind of frames it strangely where Jason's taking revenge for the murder of his mother because they never say in the flashback once and they never show Miss Voorhees being a killer. They never say she's the killer. All you see is Alice chop her head off. And you hear <laughs> you hear the mention over the campfire that, you know, like he saw his mother get murdered. <laughs> so you're like, wait. So it's like I think they're trying to give you just... as much information as, as is needed for, to if you haven't seen the first three, it's like, okay, well let's just don't let's not talk too much about the mother. Let's just establish a Jason. I know, but I'm just saying killer. it just kind of frames it that, like, you know, he's rightfully taking revenge of her, the death of his mother. <laughs> it's just kind of funny. <laughs> okay. I got a question yeah. <laughs> involving uh, the campfire sequence uh, involve- with uh, Paul Holt from Friday the 13th Part 2, uh, which obviously is uh, factored heavily in this franchise, enough that it's also in the intro to this very podcast. Uh, do you think the cast and the extras in that scene, if they knew how, uh, how much it was going to be used again and again, you know, they might look back on it now and be like, man, maybe I would have worn a different <laughs> shirt. Uh, maybe my hair would have uh, been tousled up. Maybe I would have given it a bit more. Especially I, I the people know, that didn't have any, any dialogue in part two who were just literally the extra camp or the extra camp counselors, you know, yeah. just kind of hanging out, listening yeah. to because they oh, say I'm acting is didn't. more about reacting, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I feel like maybe yeah, some people yeah. let themselves down. Yeah, yeah. It, this is the same thinking that has me uh, often going on to just deep tangents in my head when I look at all the, the cars way, way, way in the background, and they have no clue, and probably still have no clue that they are in this movie, iconized forever. Uh, anyway. You can file that next to uh, you can file that in my deep thoughts with Michael Rothman. <laughs> well, I, I look deep thoughts are always welcome as you as we all know on yeah. this podcast. That's why they're not. That's why these podcasts run longer than the movies themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, here's something we've got to address. Now, you know, we, we we feel we've got a pretty good handle on time and place in these movies as we go along, right? You know, and then oh, sorry, it took place in 1979, so now it takes place in 1984. Great. Okay, here's a question. Mrs. Jarvis is reading a newspaper, right? Near the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. that's talking about the massacre. Yeah. And I believe, am I crazy or do you not see Jason with a hockey mask? In, no, in, in, that's, that's not until the newspaper ad in part, or the newspaper story in part five. Oh, that's right. Hold, okay, hold that thought. Hold that thought. We'll have to save that for later. Okay, here's something I do have a question about, though. I don't want to talk about Rob um, too much because we should save that for the character section, obviously. But I'm trying to figure out the time in between the end of part two and him showing up to avenge Sandra's death. How many days it's been? So I thought the same thing. I I wrote down the same thing. When? How much time has he been searching for Jason? So part two ends. It's the morning. Part three begins. It's later that day. The kids show up in part three. The next a day later. It's been less than a week. One. So it's been, I think it's been two days, two and a half, three days. It's been three days because the whole day goes by at the end of part three. So it's been three days. So, 
and he seems very convinced that Jason would still be alive. Yeah. Even though he's already gone all the way out there and then would have just found out that morning that, that, that he escaped from the morgue. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I don't know if I if I buy that. I think that might see be a he's got bit all a... he's got all the newspaper clippings in in the tent with him. So if you think about it, like if this story's been going on, you got to figure they were reporting on the events of all these movies in the paper over that course of that week, right? Only a few days though. But like, if he knew about, let's say he and they live close enough, where maybe he knew about the legend of Jason. That maybe he just had this. He he knew something was up. And it's also possible because, as we know, Sandra. This once again, folks, we're going deep dive here. Sandra does drive in, in part two. So she it wasn't like she flew into the airport and got picked up by uh, Ted or something like that. And so she it's possible that they live in the area. Yeah. She mentioned to uh, uh, the guy from ACDC that they were really excited to tell <laughs> everybody back in the city about it, which implies that they, they, they says back in the city, like they only live maybe ten miles at most away from this place, yeah. and. When something like that happens, I think people in the area would know about it, like mm-hmm. the events of the first movie. Yeah, like it's, wow, something's actually happening in our town. Something like but that. But yeah, the move uh, final chapter kind of makes it seem like he's been hunting Jason for a couple years, but <laughs> which is exactly. funny because which is interesting because Joe Zito was so set on uh, everything in the beginning, looking exactly like the fir- uh, the third movie because, as he said, fans notice those types of things. Then to put that character in there and that say, well, should we? tweak this so it makes a little bit more sense i actually think it would have made more sense if he was a sibling of one of the characters from the first movie i mean it gives him a little bit more time and granted you know those Mm. killings involved mrs Voorhees. he could have been falling it over time um just almost like a jason believer of sorts and when these murders started popping up uh kind of could have fed into uh the, the the sort of conspiracy uh, mind or you know thinking that he would have had uh, leading up to this. You could have even you know involved Alice's uh, mysterious disappearance as we hear about. Also, um, I mean, because if they do that, it just seems a little more realistic. Uh, you know, granted, it's you still only have a few days of Jason's kills uh, mm. to kind of contend with, but uh, so I wouldn't really know too much about Jason. But at least it would give it a little bit more uh, weight. Uh, for his conviction I mean because you, you know you, you watch this movie and he comes into camp in the Camp Crystal Lake and, and he's got like fucking conviction of like you know Tommy Doyle from Halloween 6 and that was like you know what 17 years uh, worth of pent up 20 something years I mean that doesn't make sense Mac Mac I have a question for you did you yeah. appreciate using actually using the name Sandra where he could have just even if he didn't go with somebody from the first one they could have easily made it just be, oh, uh, one of my, my, my siblings died out here and not be so specific. What did you think about them actually invoking the name of Sandra, who's like, what, like the fifth lead of the second movie? I, no, I really like that, especially this time around, just, you know, keying in on that fact. But obviously it's created some problems because we're talking about <laughs> like three these guys' later. drive for over the last three days. And, and I'm sorry, but when you get the news back then, uh, I, I don't know. This is quick to jump at trying to find this killer who was apparently, uh, I guess, uh, I guess he wasn't, he was still out there at the end of two. So I guess if you're him, you leave the next day. 
to go <laughs> out there. Out. Does he buy a plane ticket? Does he drive? He drives. He hitchhikes out, right? Mm-hmm. He's hitchhiking. Well, he hit, up, he I think he. I don't think he drove because he's just like camping, you know. So yeah. I think he hitched out there. Eh, it doesn't make uh, much sense why he's hitchhiking either. It's like what? If he was in such a hurry, why didn't he like, hey, mom, dad, you know, our sister's dead. I think. Can I I'll tell you why, because he lives Jeep? in New York and he doesn't have a fucking car. None of those people do. My God, this is making, once again, Vanderbilt is coming up some good points here because I don't have a car either. And I, don't, I can't borrow somebody's car. This also this makes sense. This also makes sense why um, they're able to get to Manhattan in the future. It's <laughs> dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Just get a freight a, a freighter at the lake to, uh, to get your way over there. All right, well, listen, um, this series becomes even more of a nightmare when it comes to the timeline. <laughs> We're going to get to like the 20 teens by the yeah. time part seven comes along. But uh, before we get to those movies, we've got to move on to our, hell, our next section that we all love to sing and call well gang guess who's back on the scene Harry Manfredini, Manfredini the, the, the Manfredini himself, is back for some more music and another notable change to the opening credits, which I like a lot. It's a, it's a little more high energy, a little, little louder than earlier entries, and definitely a departure from the, uh, the Disco Jason theme of Part 3. They really tried to harken back to the earlier entries. I think um, everything in that opening, from the flashback to the credits to the music to the opening scene with the uh, crane, which I'm sure we'll get to later, like it yes. really does give... Uh, uh, a feeling of something epic coming mm. around. Like this is the end. I mean, you, you, yeah. you need to tack on that exploding hockey mask. Who the hell knows what's going to happen next, you know? Um, something I want to talk about music-wise, though, I, I liked a lot, is the specific Disco Jason theme that's also used throughout part three of the um, boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. That is used when the crime scene is wrapping up in part four. And, you know, they're, they're driving away from Higgins Haven and it gets right. really dark. And you don't hear that music ever again in the rest of the movie. That's a cool transition. So I thought that I was like a cool that. little tie into part three. Like, that's the end of part three. Continuity stuff, again, I, I like that a lot. Because you kind of associate that, mu- that music specifically with Higgins Haven. Um, now, uh, once again, just kind of like part three, a lot of the music in the movie is just leftover music from the first three entries. You know, if it's not broke... Why fix it, right? But we have to talk about some proper songs that are used <laughs> in this movie. There's a oh, yeah. there's a slow song that that they dance to at, at the kid's house. That's great, you know, wonderful, romantic. But we gotta talk about the music, the song that's played <laughs> during the during the some say famous, some say infamous, iconic. Uh, iconic is is without question the unifier, the Crispin Glover Jimbo dance. Um, do we have some information yeah, on that so particular song? Technically, they filmed Glover dancing to ACDC's Back in Black. Speaking of ACDC. Which, when you think about it, actually kind of makes sense for his movements with a dent, 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 But eh, I don't know. He's, he's still kind of weird yeah. in it. But uh, I've always Is thought. It's like uh, Dark Side of the Moon, Mike. <laughs> yep, exactly. It's a it's a dark side of the moon situation. If you time it up, time it correctly with with back and black, and it'll it'll look like it makes sense now. <laughs> yes, and it's nice that uh, Brian Johnson, who appeared in Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, <laughs> allowed them to use that on the set. That was uh, 
Was a, he was doing a solid. I appreciate that. This scene was actually just referenced on uh, the Scream Queen, uh, My Nightmare on Elm Street documentary that's on uh, Shutter with uh, Mark Patton. He jokes that uh, you know if he had danced like uh, Crispin Glover, he probably would have wouldn't have turned as many heads as he does with his own dancing in uh, in that movie. Uh, all of which to say that this scene is still iconic. I mean, when you mention Final Chapter uh, to people and fans some of the, sometimes one of the first things they mention is that dance sequence and, and you know it's a gif online uh you see it circulating all the time but uh, what i love about it is it really does feel like uh, an encapsulation of of crispin glover as an artist i mean even if he was dancing to acdc there's something so crazy about his mannerisms and his movements and it, it just seems so emblematic of of glover in all his uh quirky yeah. glory and, and i, I kind of love that but I mean, there's something about Glover in here, not to go on a tangent, but God, here's a guy that it could have been huge. I mean, you watch this movie and he, he, I mean, he literally takes back seat to the cast members, but he still runs away with it. I mean, we talk about Glover maybe because he's in Back to the Future, but we talk about him so much in this movie. And I, I don't know, it just makes me, makes me sad that he wasn't the leading man, that he is so clearly river's edge when you watch this he's unbelievable in river's edge um, and based on back to the future and uh, you know river's edge or any of the 80s movies that he's in and even later on i mean he just he could have been so much he could have been something so much bigger you know um like a, a joaquin phoenix and i think it's just kind of proves that if sometimes if you stick to you, your guns and your principles in hollywood you get funneled out and it's just it's sad I think he engages in self-sabotage a little bit too as mm-hmm. kind of uh making his career his whole career performance art yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, to each their own. I mean, people still talk about Crispin Glover, so, I, you know, it, it makes sense. I know our, our good friend Randall like loves Crispin Glover. Oh, totally. But, um, Mac, when you see the, um, the, the, the great Jimbo dance, what, do you think about Elaine and Seinfeld at all and her <laughs> dancing? And, and uh, do those two I mean, this blows, the, this blows that out of the water for me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I always forget this scene uh, takes place in this film, and when it does, it's always a welcome respite from <laughs> the nightmarish happenings around the camp and <laughs> the gore. uh but yeah man it is it's it's insane uh now what is the actual song that is playing though in the movie oh, i have some information like, on that yes here we go okay here we go uh that is uh love is a lie performed by the band lion they were an la hard rock heavy metal band one of my favorite eras of uh hard rock and heavy metal but they also appeared aside from friday the 13th the final chapter in two other cult classics from the 80s do you guys I happen know. to know which movies no. those are what is it they performed the hard rock version of the transformers theme from transformers the movie wow. 1986 oh, or and also else. 1986 is a big year for them because they also have two songs never surrender and power love that are featured in the 1986 Space Alien Ghost Car Possession uh, classic featuring Clint Howard and Charlie Sheen, The Wraith. Ooh. The Wraith, which I think is on Amazon Prime. It's always <laughs> it's streaming on, free somewhere. Hulu, it's, on Hulu. It's, it's on Hulu, I think. Yeah. It is worth watching. It is, uh, I mean, I, it, it, and that's a true cult classic because it seems like it's the kind of movie that everybody's seen and yet nobody has seen. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the band, you said it's Lion, correct? Lion. Roar. L I O N. Okay, so not to be confused with White Lion. No, no. different, different band. White Lion. Different, now, White Lion, different, of course, different band were, from the same the, exact era. Wasn't White Lion the band who, who had that tragic bar fire? Or was that some? No, no that's that was great. great. White. That's Great White. I yeah. apologize. I got my whites mixed up. Literally, White Lion has a 
great tune called Wait that's featured in the climax of Cold in July, uh, based on a Joe Lansdale yeah. uh, story that features uh, Don Johnson and uh, Old Boy from Dexter. That's worth watching if you like oh. uh, neo-noir. I really it's, recommend it's that good, one. Good, good score. I think Sam Shepard's in it too, isn't he? I think so, yeah. Well, as cast. we know with Lion, uh, Pedro would eventually join the band, and uh, they would dial the, the heavy oh back God. throughout the 90s and uh, into the aughts uh, to create some great indie rock as uh, Pedro the Lion. Uh, yeah, great band and a mediocre bit I just did. <laughs> well, Mike, but we all remember them. I would see them at, at, at their their EPs and LPs Ooh. at Final Fever in Tallahassee, Florida. Yeah, time. and yeah. I went Let to me. their show in Tallahassee in, uh, in what could only be described as a sitcom situation. I invited two girls I was seeing uh, at the same time foolishly, and uh, there were two levels to club and uh, multiple levels of anxiety <laughs> the entire night. Yeah, Just let them fight over you. Yeah, that's it was. Put in the that's same the room spirit. and let him fight over you. Yeah. Um, I want well, to offer a challenge. regular Teddy over here. I want to offer a challenge to our listeners, for anybody listening to the podcast. What I would like you to do, I'd like you to take the Crispin Glover dancing scene and overdub whatever music you would like and send it to the Halloweenies podcast. And like we will repo- We will repost it to our social media. We'll do our own version of it and also post and then encourage people to join in on the fun and see how yes. many videos get taken down immediately by Instagram. <laughs> and I have an addendum to this. Uh, based on your question uh, to Mac, Justin, I want to see someone splice George's reaction to Elaine's dance uh, with that of Crispin Glover's dance moves. I, th- I think he's eating shrimp and he's just like, ugh. Yes, he is. <laughs> sweet, sassy molasses. Sweet, whole, sweet, fancy Moses. <laughs> Yeah. Well, listen, everybody, we have, you know, to, to be fair, maybe they won't take down the music because uh, last time I checked, as, as some of you may know, I, I slipped in a little Bruce Springsteen recording into mm-hmm. the Friday 13th Part <laughs> 3 ending, and I think it's still up and running as of about a month. Yeah. So sometimes uh, we sneak things in there and we get away with it for a while. I'm sure some you know, some jerk at Atlantic or at whatever record company is listening right now. And uh, oh, we will. Uh, the, the Losers Club just got flagged uh, because three years ago I put up a clip from... Uh, the, the Dead Zone TV series, and it had music from uh, Steely Dan in it. And, you know, and I uploaded that, you know, such a long time ago. And Randall just texted me last week, uh, basically saying, you know, oh, Instagram took this down, and we're going to get in trouble. And I was like, ah, no, it's, it's been three years. Uh, you know, we, you know, we got our worth <laughs> every, out of it. Every time I get in trouble for that, you know, I just straight up appeal and say that I own the rights to the music, and it usually just flies. Like, that's yeah. the trick to doing that. <laughs> Like, yeah, it's, it's mine. I, I, bought, I bought it off iTunes for 99 cents, well, so it's mine. Well, we got now. all this on recorded. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Here's how you get around breaking the law. Um, well, listen, uh, gang, by my, by my account, we're about an hour into the podcast, so I guess it's time to talk about Jason. Um, so let's move on to our next section called His Name Was Jason. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. Well, before we start talking about uh, the person who plays Jason in the final chapter, something I noticed in the closing credits where they note special appearances by the cast of Fridays 1 through 3, uh, Steve Daskowitz, a.k.a. Steve Dash, gets credit for everything you see from part <laughs> 2. Warrington, Gen- Warrington Gillette is not mentioned once. Awesome. Justice so, served. Justice for Mr. Ted White over here. I, I thought that was a cool little uh, n- uh, note that yeah. I noticed. Um, so let's talk about Ted White, who takes over from Richard Brooker. He's obviously a much leaner, more 
normal, if you want to say normal <laughs> looking human being. Um, he was in his, he was almost 60 years old in this movie. Unreal. He, born in 1926, incredible career as a stuntman, of course, as most of these characters are, most of these actors are. Um, you know, they stunt, he was a stuntman for Clark Gable, John Wayne. He did some work, if you watch Creature from the Black Lagoon as the Gill Man. Good God. That's oh, huge, wow. right? That'd be like saying, oh yeah, That's Boris crazy. Karloff showed up in, uh, he played, Boris Karloff played uh, Michael Myers in Halloween 4. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's iconic characters. He's like, hey, um, back off, George. I got this. But he's one of the, he's one of the rare people who who play Jason or even you know Michael Myers who I've recognized in other mm-hmm. other projects as himself as an actual actor. Can anybody think of anything off the top of their heads before I name two specific entries? Uh, I know he looks a lot like Robert Forster. He does look like Robert Forster. Yeah. All right. Well, here we go. That great scene in Starman oh. when Jeff Bridges brings the deer back to life. Yeah. The deer belongs to Ted White, Ted White's character. Oh, wow, yeah. He's yeah, the hunter right. in that scene. And he was working on that huh. during this. Uh, you, you, he would go back right, and forth around the same it. time. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, he showed up to set wearing the Jason makeup. Karen <laughs> 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 Allen. Yeah, the, the original scene, Starman heals his face. Yeah. Uh, um, also, this is for all you X-Files fans. He was, he's the gas station attendant who, who pops up a couple times. In the two-parter Dreamland, which uh, featured Michael McKeon. Oh, and uh, your favorite season, Justin. Isn't that the, isn't that the comedy season? The <laughs> yeah. Best season? Yeah. Well, you like, love hey, it. Everybody loved Bad Blood, so let's make 22 episodes of yeah. Bad Blood. For season six. <laughs> the, 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 the X-Files seems to be like the law and order of genre cinema character totally. actors. Like, everybody it's shows so much up so that, that even um, <laughs> people from law and order show up in the X-Files as their characters. <laughs> yes. For Christ's sake. Oh, oh yeah. It, Detective Munch, yes, I'm sure. Detective Munch. Hey, no joke. At the time of filming, he was 11 months older than Betsy Palmer, a.k.a. Mrs. Voorhees. So, <laughs> older than his on-screen mother, if you could believe that. And he's Jesus. still alive. He is you know, 94 you ba- years old. <laughs> you barely see him on screen, though. And this is something I wanted to, I, I noticed while I was watching it. And I, I'm definitely going to bring up when it comes to uh, Jason Goes to Hell when we get to one of my favorite entries in the series. That... If you actually add up the amount of time Jason is seen on screen, I'll bet it doesn't come uh, even up to ten minutes. Hmm. Oh, in this movie? In this one? In any of them? Really? You don't see, especially oh, we get to the later entries. He's he's fifty percent of the movie. You mm-hmm. know, well, I think they're still trying. But seeing to, it's not him, a mystery, but they're trying to keep him still in the dark. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, I I feel like jason is most like michael myers in this one than any of the other ones in the friday the 13th franchise friday three i know you guys talked three. about that with uh friday three and how he like stalks all the victims and i agree with that but i mean just look at the way that he you know plays with the victims in this movie uh, he, he's very clever in the way that michael is and he's also not on screen a lot um and and i think in, He's in very methodical. I feel like Halloween actually took from this movie when he, when Michael Myers ultimately comes back in, uh, in Halloween four. But uh, you know, going back on those comparisons, I, I think that there are a lot of spiritual ties between this movie and the original Halloween. I mean, you have Tommy Doyle in Halloween, Tommy Jarvis. They're both kids. They literally have the same haircut. Um, this is the first time we were really seeing Jason in a home, even though, uh, you know, Higgins Haven was kind of like a home. There's like the whole babysitter vibes, like the two house structure. 
I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there, there, there are some, there are some ties there uh, to be had. Of course, the biggest change is what White brings to the table. Uh, in the documentary, he talks about how uh, because you know this was supposed to be the final chapter, he didn't really want Jason to to be mm. kind of slumbering around as he is in three, which is why at the end you see Jason just like sprinting, which is not like my. That guy reminds at all. me of part two, you know. Yeah, it just reminds mm. me of you know the 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 very grounded human, although. Far from human in this movie, uh, Jason that we that I love from part two, um, and I and I now I wasn't on three, but I did watch it with y'all for the the Twitch watch. But I does he move a lot slower in that film? Because He's they still said they, they made like a yeah because because yeah because White said that he he kind of made the decision that he really wanted. I guess he 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 realized maybe maybe they were asking him to go to make it more of a stalker esque mm-hmm. Michael Myers vibe. And he was like, nah, 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 bro. Like, I gotta, I'm gonna run <laughs> well, this. Thing. Nah, bro. You never really see him run until the end when he's chasing uh, Trish from house to house. Other yeah. than that, you really don't see him move necessarily because he's already in a spot. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, wait, like I said about the methodical thing, like he's sitting there waiting and he almost sets it up like we were going back to that kind of gleeful look he had on his face at the end of part three when he was terrorizing Chris. Um, he's almost kind of getting joy out of like setting these kids up yeah, and getting them terrified and then offing them. Yeah. I think very, this is the most brutal Friday the 13th, I think personally. Oh, easily. Yeah. It's the most brutal that we were able to see. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? They didn't get too hacked up. I mean, there's some, there's some stuff that definitely got cut down. If you can go on YouTube and watch some more extended footage, especially of Jason's demise. Um, I I think the trademark for this Jason um, in terms of physical appearance would be like the long black fingernails that he has. Mm. Anybody notice that compared to the earlier That's entries? So they gross. really point out that he's got those gross, almost rotting fingernails. Uh, when, we wa- when we watched it at that party, uh, that birthday party I told you about, I remember one of the girls that were there had serious critique of uh, Jason's uh, Manny Petty. <laughs> so now whenever, his I, feet look like? whenever I see when he rips off the, uh, the fuse box... Because that's, I remember when she said that yeah. at that particular moment, that's all I think about when I see his big black nails. So gross. Um, he's not in good shape. Mac, I have a question for you. Yeah. We always talk about at the end of these movies, whether we think Jason survived, right? So the question is, is Jason alive or dead in this movie? Mm. What do you think happens? Is he, did he survive? And is he, did they accidentally put him in the morgue? Or what's going on? What do you think? I, I, I think personally think, see, I don't because it makes more sense to me that if he's alive through these four films and then six, six makes a, yeah. a lot more sense and the future films after that make a lot more sense if six is the beginning of that. But, but I think because even when they, because no, because when they put him in the free, the freezer box, you see the breath coming up, You're so right. he's yeah. breathing. He's still alive. He's not oh, like a zombie that. or void. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I look at that again. When he closes the door, you see a breath coming up. Huh. Uh, Such that's something you definitely would never. Well, you'd never catch that on VHS or on TV. God, no, no. Right, but it's, it, you and can like, definitely see it when, when he closes it. So I, I definitely think that he's still alive. Do I believe it? I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I think that he. Sheet. I think he is uh, going into this. This this film and uh yeah 
Well, this is where I feel like uh, the slasher films or the horror movies of this era start uh, kind of setting the template for the indestructible movie <laughs> maniac. Uh, you know, something that Michael Myers would become in like Halloween 4 or 5 or 6 or, yeah, those, particularly that trilogy. Uh, but I, I feel like Jason enters like slumber mode. You know, like he, he, he he's almost like a boss in a video game where like he, he you know, you could you could beat him down. But if you let him, um, you know, on his own for a little bit, he'll kind of regain strength and energy. And I feel like Jason just needs a moment to chill. And, and, and literally in this movie, I mean, they, they put him in the, the, the freezing morgue. Uh, but I, I feel like, you know, just just let him back a little bit. And uh, he'll recharge his strength and, uh, and and come out on top again. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think he's supernatural here, but um, I mean, you kind of have to be if you're <laughs> sustaining some of these blows. But uh, yeah, bottom line, y- you give uh, Jason any room to breathe, literally, metaphorically, whatever. Uh, he's going to come back stronger than ever. You know. So. Well, I think also something that that's happened around that time. If we want to go back to the whole, you know, you have sex, you die. That's shortly after Axel and um, the nurse, nurse have started to fool around. Mm-hmm. So maybe that reawakened. Maybe that reawakened them. You know. Yeah. Well, I think this is the first movie where you really get that uh, that notion of I, I, you see it before in the other ones, but I think this one really kind of drives home the point: if you have sex, you die oh, more totally. than the other ones. Oh, n- no question about it. And we'll get to that ca- when we yeah when we get to the next the next category, which. Um, but to argue that oh, Jason, the only the only massive argument I have that Jason's already dead in this one, if you want to believe that, is that he's underwater for a long time. It feels like when he kills uh, Sarah, no, uh, the the Sam. girl in the raft. Oh and, yeah, later on. Yeah. yeah, we'll talk about Sam. it. So you're saying that he's? You don't think? He, I don't know. I think he, because she hears stuff going on. I think that he just held his breath. I think he snuck in there and held his breath for. You, so you can hold your breath for a few minutes if you. If well, you, maybe if he you just pursed his lips at the top of the lake, and he was just like, <laughs> oh, "Gross, how lame, yeah. just disgusting." Well, as we uh, all know, Jason's terrified of. As we all know, Jason's terrified of water. Yes. So I'm not sure I was able to pull that off. Uh, but we'll talk about that way later on in the year. Oh God. <laughs> um, you know, we've been talking a lot about Jason being locked up in the morgue and, and Axel making out. I think it's time to move on to our our next category. Which is called Dead Fox. I'm the messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay here. This place is cursed. Cursed. Okay, gang. We are in the Dead Fox zone here. Uh, dead zone. Dead, dead Fox zone. How about that? It crossover. It's crossover. Um, let's start with A. Let's start with where it all begins with. Um, Somebody, a naughty coroner, or a naughty, a naughty morgue worker, a naughty mortician, a naughty, a, a real asshole, as, as it were. He was alluded to earlier. He's not the first, but he's not the, and maybe he's the last Paramount Axel from this year. I'm talking about Axel, played by Bruce Smaller, who Mike Vanderbilt, of course, referred to as Paramount's other great Axel. No, the Super Bowl of self abuse. Oh, the Super Bowl of self abuse, yes. My God. And yeah. also, an icon from one of the other classic um, 80s franchises. So happy you brought it up because we've, we've talked about him nonstop in our, in our live Instagram Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the Police Academy films. Mm. Bruce Mahler, a recurring, was he Tackler? Yeah, and I think he shows up in at least three of them. 
Either one, two, and three makes a triumphant return in City Under Siege. That's right. He does come back, yes. Uh, Tackler, of course, is not anything like Axel. He, first of all, he wears glasses. <laughs> um, and second of all, he's kind of this real clumsy guy who like, causes damage but never seems to, is never aware of it. That's his, that's his uh, existence in the movies. Uh, definitely check out Police Academy 1, 2, 3, and 6 for Bruce Mahler's uh, Tackler. Terrific character. Have, have we gone this entire season uh, mentioning Police Academy in every one of these episodes? If we haven't, I hope so. I was just going to ask. I don't think we talked about it in the first one. Yeah, <laughs> I think we did. I don't think. I feel like it popped up in two, and then it went on from there. And well, somehow I mean, I it know- just keeps popping up. I know nobody wants to do Saw for the next one, so I'm just saying that we completely go off the books, off the rails, and do the Police Academy series for the next season of Halloween. Oh, Lord. Oh, God. Well, they are well, ghoulish I don't watches. Wanna, I, don't, I don't want to do Saw for the next series, but um, Axel sure gets a Saw to the throat. Oh. Hey. Uh, look at that. Correct. <laughs> he does. Well, some great. Look, this is, I mean, Axel and, and Nurse Robbie Morgan – they're just Bud and Karen from Halloween 2, right? Yeah. They, oh, absolutely. They accelerated their demise. Also, I love that line when she yells out, I'll tell you where I'm going. I'm going crazy. <laughs> yeah, I've got noted here. In addition to that, I think Paul, I think Barney Cohen was a real fan of the Three Stooges. There's a lot of like, I'm going nuts here. Do you hear me? There's just a lot of that G whiz, <laughs> the world's coming to an end. That's my curly imitation for everybody. That's a good one. Mac, as you mentioned, he gets his neck sawed violently and his head ripped around. Uh, Turned around In violent ways, we haven't really even seen in any any earlier entries in terms of the the visceral. I mean, obviously the axe to the groin is visceral, but that's more of a suggestion. But you actually really see this guy's neck getting sawed and just ripped around. It's it's pretty brutal. Mike Vanderbilt, your thoughts? Well, I think that sets the tone for what you're getting from this movie mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I, that it's and it's a it's you know this movie doesn't as brutal as it is i don't find the deaths to be as memorable as the original film despite savini being involved but this is definitely top three i think right would you say that this is the the beginning of when a lot of the slasher films started getting into like the the um the the high like the tall wire acts of of deaths i mean like the whole twisting around the neck thing seems like kind of in the same realm as like you know myers putting the thumb through the forehead in halloween 4 like that type of gore level of like almost like supernatural strength type thing i think 84 could be considered a turning point particularly because later this year in november we get uh the original nightmare on elm street Mm -hmm. yeah so you're starting to see more, uh, what do I want to say, high-concept killers as well as high-concept deaths. Mac, do you... Also, with this Good. being, yeah, Justin, with this being technically the last mm-hmm. of the series, I think they were just like, we got to step up all these all these deaths. Although, like you said, Mike, I, I don't think they're super memorable. Um, they're just brief, and obviously that's because they had to continuously take this back to the NBA <laughs> and have it cut and cut and cut and cut. Cause when you watch these scenes uncut, they're very memorable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They just keep going on and on and on. They're like, Here, you yeah. want 20 seconds? Do you want 10 seconds? Do you want three <laughs> seconds? Like we might make this as gross as possible in a short amount of time as possible. So you, you at least see something, you know? Yeah. Cause um, there is an extended cut of, um, 
Rob, uh, not Rob, but um, the Axel's death, right? Where you actually just there is. continuously see it. Yeah. And like the head's like, oh, I can't believe this. <laughs> um, um, something very memorable, obviously, is I got some information here. That exercise workout that we mm. see him watching <laughs> yes. and enjoying, um, that's an actual movie distributed by Paramount called Aerobicize, The Beautiful Workout. And one of the bouncing exercise girls is actually Darcy DeMoss, who plays Nikki in Jason Lives. Love it. How Love about that? She, she, oh, I want to see the Paramount contract. <laughs> it's like, get you an size, Maybe, yeah. the beautiful ah, the good old studio, the good old studio system at work. I love, I love like, like Robert Evans was like, yeah, we got the Godfather love story. <laughs> and then in the eighties, it's like Friday the 13th, the final chapter, aerobicize the beautiful workout. It's all working according to plan. <laughs> like yeah. his, his dream has come true. <laughs> I was just going to say, I know you said earlier that, uh, that, uh, Zito didn't want the flashback opening. Right. I truly believe after Nurse Morgan is killed, that is when the credits were supposed to start, because it flashes to no, white. That makes sense. And it, 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 it flashes. I don't even know if it flashes to white. It just goes straight to that weird jogging scene between Trish and Mrs. Jarvis, where it, it's no, like it flashes we to white. We don't even get two of, seconds. It's one of the last flashes to white I think you see in the Friday the Thirteenth series. Until the very end of this movie, ah. when when it, right. Tommy looks at the camera. Yeah. Well, here's the thing though. Just, that's a, a long intro, transition. though. It is. That's a long intro. That'd be like a a 10, 15 minute intro before the opening. Is it longer? Up. Is it longer or shorter than the intro for Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, though? Oh, I yeah. Think about. It. I mean, you would open with them going to the barn, clearing up the site, trip to the the morgue, talking to Axel at the morgue. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of time before the opening credits would pop up. Unless they were going to just cut back entirely and then jump into the opening credits. I don't know. Yeah, hey, th- let's get Joseph Zito on the phone. <laughs> should, he's he's yeah. he's amenable. He's, he's he seems like he's he's done a you lot of things. You could probably get him. I'd like you to should. talk to him. He's a he's a, he's got he had an interesting career. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, Mike, you mentioned Nurse Robbie Morgan, uh, played by Lisa Hell Freeman. Yeah. Do you mm-hmm. know the name Robbie Morgan? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It does sound familiar. Why? Well, she plays a little character called Annie in Friday the 13th. That's oh. the name of the actor. Yes, yes. That's a nice little uh, nod. And, and, and look, we're four chapters in. We're starting to build a Friday family, as we discussed with Larry Zerner. <laughs> Hashtag uh, Friday family. Friday family. Um, not to be confused uh, with uh, uh, ABC's uh, Friday programming of the 90s. Um, or the F. Gary Gray <laughs> film, Friday. <laughs> yeah. If they came back and they're like, well, let's do a live watch along of the Friday movies, Friday family. Um so I, I I like that they they're, they're making little uh, nods already here. I mean it's it's only you know, been like four years. <laughs> and and to that point, it's interesting because that seems like such a modern day quote unquote Easter egg mm-hmm. that they would throw in. That does, I don't think that was uh, as important or as prevalent in 1984. So perhaps the final chapter is a uh, trendsetter in more than one way. Yeah, I, I would agree. A trendsetter chapter, really. <laughs> Yeah. Her character is not that memorable. Again, she gives off one of those oh. die, why I oughta lines. I, dis- and, um, I disagree on that. Uh, I, one thing I love about 70s and 80s horror movies, you get to see a lot of those classic nurses' dresses. And uh, Robbie Morgan <laughs> can indeed get it. Oh, yeah. Robbie Morgan, the nurse Robbie Morgan. The nurse Robbie Morgan. Confused with Robbie Morgan. Robbie Morgan, RN. Um, um, she gets a pretty brutal scalpel, which she alludes to earlier when she threatens Axel with it. And she gets a scalpel down the chest, all the way down. She basically gets, what, gutted, right? I guess that's the best way to put it. Something else very important for you, Back to the Future Freaks. She is, and I think she's in the first two movies. Most notably, though, 
She is the one that's standing next to um, Leah Thompson's character. Like I yes. can't remember her name. And she says, what a creep. And he goes, I think he's a dream. Yep. That's Lisa Freeman. Yeah. Who says that line. Which is great. Oh. I wonder, do you think that when they were on the set um, and they're in between takes, uh, she walked over to Christmas and was like, hey, uh, how about final chapter last year? That's right. It's the it's it's part two of the infamous Freeman Glover uh, collaboration <laughs> years. Yeah, uh, he's uh, like, Matt, like, I don't we gotta get. Uh... Matt, anything to add to Nurse Morgan? Uh, I was just gonna say, you know, I I, I really enjoyed her performance, uh, Lisa Freeman, and that uh, I, I think that. Um... <laughs> Wow, a lot, we've got a lot to say about Lisa Freeman's character. And <laughs> I know. I was just going to say that I think that when her and Kristen Morgan were uh, Kristen Morgan, Kristen Glover were talking on a set, that they probably were uh, hoping that Jason would come uh, to that set and take care of uh, Mr. Stoltz. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's a whole other great podcast right there. Uh, well, yeah. speaking of Freeman, let's talk about Joan Freeman, who plays Mrs. Jarvis. No relation, by the way. Uh uh, this actor was a character actor basically throughout the 60s. This is a very notable presence because mm-hmm. this is really the first time, aside from obviously Mrs. Voorhees, that we have a, a real mother in the franchise. You know, we've got a real family going on here. Um, I think we should probably dive into that, at least yeah. in terms of trying to separate itself from the first three movies. I, I think it's really important, especially with regards to the Tommy character who, you know, ostensibly is supposed to be us, you know, the kids watching these movies and, you know, wishing that we could do something about her, get in in the action. And having, you know, Tracy Jarvis, a.k.a. Mama Jarvis, kind of adds to the stakes a little bit to prove that, like, you know, not even Mommy and Daddy can stop uh, Jason from hurting you. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and I think that it kind of goes into the the type of 80s horror that I love where, like, parents are just non-existent. Uh, I always think of, like, the movie The Gate and how, like, the kids are really left to their own devices to kind of figure out and sort out all the craziness that's going on and by taking her out early on you you really do kind of have like that well there goes the warm glow that we had so early on in this movie and you really do get a warm glow i mean she's a loving character like we first meet her when she's like kind of jogging together with trish and you kind of have like an immediate chemistry and just seeing like their family life and those little glimpses kind of goes back to what i was talking about with like the link ladder yeah. portraits like you know them talking about leftovers and you know the jarvis sandwich like it's so cute i love it and I, it's a part of the franchise you re- we really haven't seen before and i think it adds so much more it acts like almost like a spielberg dynamic to this movie mm-hmm. uh, i was just gonna say something i think that is kind of a missed opportunity um i know that her her death was um cut you know, or, or it was supposed to be kind of like an aftermath, the uh, dream sequence of sorts. That's the last jump scare. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, in a second, we'll get yeah. talk about that later. But um, I kind of felt like if they were gonna go, well, I'll, I'll save it for the Tommy talk. Let's. I, I don't have anything hmm. to talk about Joan Freeman except for the Jarvis sandwich being charming and that uh, they do a really good job setting up this family, uh, and you really do care about them as a family unit in the beginning of this film. Well, I think psychologically, you're just gonna be more inclined to feel for a child and a mother mm-hmm. as opposed to no, no offense to the teens. I mean, we obviously we felt, you know, we didn't want the teens to die in the earlier entries, but this, for me, at least psychologically, I'm not getting pleasure in seeing Jason murdering like a parent or a child. You no. know what I mean? Well, and I think it brings it back to the first movie. It draws an illusion of that in that Jason is out. And according to the, uh, the flashback in the intro, Jason's out avenging his mother's death. Mm-hmm. And then 
kills Tommy's mother, which possibly could tie into well, where they possibly wanted the series to go mm-hmm. uh, after this one. Well, yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Yeah, ultimately, they, I felt he's a missed opportunity there. If they if they wanted to do that, I think that it would have been a stronger choice to have or even have like one of the kids from across the way in a mistaken identity situation kill Miss Jarvis thinking it was Jason around the corner or something mm-hmm. and Tommy witnesses it. Because then that would have given Tommy some like disdain for kids in in, in that area. <laughs> you know True. what I mean? Like there would have been more more uh, fuel to the fire. But well, uh, I, and also if they were going to do that arc, they probably should have included like the alternate ending. You know where you see the really. I mean, it's dark. I, I really, really kind of yeah. taken a different light in there. But I think it would have feeded into that narrative a little bit more when you see her death in the bathtub and Trish finds her. And uh, I mean, probably the da- one of the darkest kind of, hours of the movie. Well, let's, we might as well talk, Mac, you alluded to it first. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's just talk about now. Like there is an alternate ending to this movie that it was another one of those white whales that people have talked about for decades, but you know, was it really shot? Did it really happen? Was it just in the script? And I think when the, his name was Jason documentary came out around that time, um, or maybe one of the, the first box sets for the series came out, this was actually finally included. And long story short is after the events of the movie, when we see Tommy hacking Jason to death, it fades into Trish sleeping on the couch the next morning. And she kind of gets up and she sees that there's water leaking from the ceiling oh. as in the bathtubs overflowed. So she goes upstairs and she, you know, she, she pulls back the, the shower curtain and she sees her mother dead in the bathtub. And so she's crying obviously. And she lifts her up. And when she lifts her up, the mother's eyes open and they're just totally white pupils. And then we see Jason out of focus behind her. And he like swings down a machete. And then it cuts to her, her as we see her in the movie in the hospital being talked to by the, uh, the authorities. So really disturbing. And, you know, it and would make sense, too, because if you're talking about a movie that was like looked at as a bookend and the film is just filled with allusions to all the entries this really does kind of go hand in hand with Alice's ending in the first one and to have that sort of dream sequence in, in, in pretty much all the other movies too. So I, I, it is kind of surprising that they took it out and I, and I get why they took it out because it really does change the tone um, big time. I mean, it's so severe. Like I, I think there's a drama, the dramatic element to it that and a gravitas to her death that is different than I think any of the deaths that happen in any of the Friday the 13th movies. So maybe it would have been a little too severe but it, I think it actually would have benefited the narrative and the, the, the scope of the franchise a little bit more. But. And it's, it's, it's interesting to note that's total Zetoism, the, uh, the bathtub with the white eyes, because he uh, nicked that from his previous film, 1981's The Prowler, right. uh, with a shower. And it's interesting to note that he, didn't wa- he never wanted it in there. It was the studio or the owners that made him do that. You talking about 81 or are you talking about this movie? This movie. Do it? He never wanted it. So I think, he, and I was thinking, well, wait, it's such a Zetoism. Well, when they said, hey, we need a, we, they probably said to him, well, we need one final scare. And he goes, well, I'm just going to rip off my old movie. <laughs> I got to say, looking back on it, Mac, I'm not sure if you'd agree. I mean, I think this, this dream sequence is better than the dream sequence in part five. It's better than the dream sequence in part three. I mean, it's, it's still pretty effective, especially mm-hmm. with Jason just standing there out of focus in the background. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't get to see how Miss, I almost said Miss Voorhees. How <laughs> Mrs. Jarvis is actually killed, you know, um, because I mean, you know, you see her see something and then it cuts, and then 
they just cut her in the bathtub. So it's just like her dead body floating there or whatever. But I still think it's pretty effective. I, I think they just, they just wanted another jump scare before, mm-hmm. before the end, you know, and then they decided to cut it. I think honestly, it was probably the best thing to do is to cut it. Cause it kind of muddies things because Jason, when he does attack her in the bathroom, doesn't have the mask on. And I, I, I think because they were really like, this is the end. They didn't want us to think that maybe Jason's still out there. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. why they cut the sequence. Yeah. Makes well, sense. It's, just a, it's just a cool Easter egg to finally discover is real after years of questioning. You know, it was, it was pretty cool to find that out 10 years ago after 25 years of wondering. But what do you totally. think Tracy sees? Is it Jason? I mean, it has to be. Right? Because there's no deaths really, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, it's Jason. Okay. I think Jason, definitely. Uh. And I it's, guess not, it's not as confusing as what happens to Gordy, which we'll talk about in a second. Hmm. I uh, mean, if it's if if it was in fact Doug and he killed her and Tommy saw it, then it would make sense that Tommy later on <laughs> would <that's> think right. <laughs> that the that the counselors were responsible, even though these weren't counselors at all. Uh, so it kind of creates a but it kind of creates a new narrative that I think would work, where it's just you don't have to be a camp counselor; you just have to be a dumb kid in the woods. Exactly. Well, yeah. um, we talked about her a little bit in the dream sequence, but we should talk about uh, Trish, played by Kimberly Beck. Uh, she was a housewife in Independence Day. I've only seen that movie once, so I can't say I remember her in it. <laughs> but most notably, she was a child in Marnie, Alfred Hitchcock's Marnie. So she worked with huh. with old Hitch. Hmm. Um, she was blonde, so he loved, he loved the blondes. What can I say? Even though she was eight years old at the time. <laughs> Let's uh, move on from that comment immediately. Um, I, I love this character. I think she's great in this movie. I think she plays a, a, a great big sister who you don't see a lot in terms of big sister to, to little brother in, the, in these movies. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised that um, I, I was on Team Trish at the end. She really comes through. We, just that Just that one scene where she's standing at the doorway, Jason's creeping up on her, and she just like, she gets it. She like knows he's there. She turns around, throws the machete at, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I feel like usually it's, it's, you, you know, as an audience we're we're like, turn around, turn around. And she's like, no, 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 I got it guys. I know he's there. <laughs> like, and then turns around and attacks him. And I think she's a pretty strong uh, character. Yeah. There's only one moment where I'm just like, what? Like, and it's right before, uh, it's right <laughs> after uh, Rob, Rob gets yep. taken down and she runs out of the basement and then it's like, eh, well, let me double check again. And then like runs back <laughs> and it's like, what are you doing? Like it, it's, and then she gets pulled in and it's like, yeah, no shit. He's down there. You li- he's literally screaming that he's dying. <laughs> like <laughs> maybe she thought he was lying to her. Yeah. The, the fa- she, maybe she's got abandonment issues. Like, you know, the father's obviously not there anymore. Yeah. He probably lied. And so maybe she thinks that he's lying, saying maybe he's not really getting killed down there in the basement. That's that's my. Take. I did think there's a sequence where she's telling Tommy to run like hell, that she's going to distract Jason, and then she's like, and then Tommy, you run like hell. And I kind of wish we had seen the reverse of that, where like Tommy told someone to do that, and maybe they do in part six, and I just can't remember. But I just kind of liked, I would have liked to see that that kind of paralleled um, at some point. Um, or mirror. We'll keep that in mind when we're when we're watching Jason Lives. See if well, there's any little Easter eggs there. Speaking of Jason Lives, don't you feel that uh, Trish and Rob are kind of a prelude to Tommy and Megan? Uh, absolutely. In terms of especially meeting, yeah, within the movie itself, not having been established as a couple. That's a good. That's a good point. Oh, and 
and here's some another great thing. Some of the worst couples of all time coming up in a new beginning. Some of the worst couples you'll ever see in cinema. <laughs> yep. But uh, Jason Lives but, yeah, uh, brings it all home. Something else I wanted to mention was it, it's it's that horror movie mentality where you're just not thinking straight. Trish is at the kid's house. You know, Jason, she jumps out of a window <laughs> to get out of this house. Runs across, runs across to her home, opens the door, and then starts locking the windows as if Jason wouldn't just throw himself through a window. <laughs> yeah. Like, she just literally jumped out of a window. Like, like that's not going to do anything. These are giant windows. Closing them and locking them ain't going to do anything. So I love that. I love when he just bursts through because it's just like, of course. Well, I also but love I will he say, also kicks his way through the door as a great gift. That's an yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's uh, I think that um, much like when uh, in part three, when you see him look through the window, uh, it, when he's coming into the cabin, like that's the first time in the movie where you really get to see the scale of Jason Voorhees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in this one, when he bursts through the window and grabs, grabs little Tommy. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Tommy. Oh, I wanted to talk. I wanted to talk about uh, Trish. Never for mind. A Let's talk about <laughs> Trish again. Let's keep because going. I just wanted to get one in. She, like everybody talks about Ginny, I think Trish is my favorite final girl, if only for the line uh, piggybacking what Mac was saying. When she knows Jason's there and uh, she's attacking him, she just says, uh, "I'm going to give you something to remember us by." Before she mm. puts the machete into the into the hand, I just uh, think that's a yeah. pretty awesome yeah. sequence. That's good. Yeah, she's. I think she's good in this. I think she's. I think it's good. I think it's definitely a, a, a case to be made for her being the best of the final girls. Uh, yeah, I feel like every franchise, it's just so definitive. I mean, you could say, is it Alice or Nancy? You know, for the Nightmare series, and then obviously it's it's Lori for Halloween, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a number of there's a number of different people you could say for this franchise, which I think uh, has it positively stick out from the other franchises. Is that there are so many likable final girls or in this series case, final guys. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that going forward. Well, hey, speaking of final guy, because, I mean, when you think about the definitive hero of the Friday the 13th franchise, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's nobody else but Tommy Jarvis. Tommy so. Jarvis played by um, 80s, listen, 80s teen icon, Corey yeah. Feldman. And he's really, this really is the beginning of something. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you got this and obviously you got Gremlins. And then you kind of morph your way into Stand By Me, The Lost Boys. Dream a little dream. <laughs> Wait, hold on a second. No license to drive, though. That was a hit too. Yeah, with the with the other Corey Haim. Well, Rest this piece. huge year for him. Uh, on the mm-hmm. in a year where I was born, uh, so too was his career uh, because he was in this obviously in April, and then in June would pop up in Gremlins. And the thing that I I love about this one is that he really is like purely innocent in this movie. And even in Gremlins, he he's has that innocence, but you kind of start getting that like little like kind of slacker. Um, like bratty edge to him whereas yeah. in this one you don't really get that like he is just like purely a kid in here and um, god I, there's just so many moments with him where he's just so innocent and like young and like really like true to life and like I think you know we've already started parodying it on we were already parodying on our, our socials but that whole sequence where he's just like at the window with his <laughs> pillow like I, like I fucking love that like it's so it's so yes. real speaking um, of young Feldman yeah. as Tommy uh, I did think that uh, that <laughs> they could have done more with the mask making because they set that up hugely. And I know that at the end he makes himself look, but really the guy just cuts his hair off. You know, he doesn't like put a mask. He doesn't like go downstairs and make a mask real quick. Yeah. And let, let me tell you, I was going to say as, as someone who uh, once took the clippers to his hair just to see if he could do it, there's no way 
That's the most unbelievable thing in this movie. There's no way he could cut that mop top that fast. Well, this is the ongoing discussion, Mike, because I haven't had a haircut in three months. And so it's like crazy. Like I'm like losing my mind because it's so thick in the back except for the top, you know? And people are always like, well, why don't you just do it yourself? I'm like, because I always make the comparison that I'm going to look like Tommy Jarvis. And actually, fellow Halloweeny Dan Caffrey made the same statement last night because he also shaved his head but didn't want to do it himself because... He did not want to look like Tommy Jarvis. So there's, there's a definite fear there of, of shaving one's head because well, you're going to end up with if, patches. Uh, if Tommy had a mirror and he had clippers. I'm telling you, be, people will still miss okay. a little spot because of lighting or well, something like that. He misses some you know, spots. Thatch. He does. He does. It's not a perfect shave. Um, I guess around the time that they started filming this, it was on Halloween, which is funny because he actually thought that he was going to be in a Halloween movie when he auditioned for this. Um, which only feeds into the whole Tommy Doyle, Tommy Jarvis illusions, but uh, comparisons. But um, the thing that's great is that like they did try to shield him from any of the quote unquote bad stuff. And especially like the nudity. So like that scene where he's watching, you know, throughout the window, he's like, I mean, he's not actually watching them no, and no, having no. sex. Um, but he says later on that uh, in the scene in which uh, Jody Aronson's character bends over to greet uh, Tommy's dog, um, unbeknownst to anyone, uh, Feldman said he could see right down her low cut top. Um, so hey, maybe uh, the the, uh, the 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 origin story for the angels <laughs> <laughs> begins with that low oh cut God. top. Did, um, did, did, did Corey's angels begin in 2014? Maybe it was a 30 year anniversary. Yeah, and we have to look into been, that later on. You know, um, but, something about I want to do. We, we've been joking a lot, but I, I think especially in this era, it was really hard to cast kids mm-hmm. in movies like this without them coming off as annoying yeah. or bratty. And I think there is something really likable about him and especially his relationship with his sister and his mother that makes it that well, my voice is cracked. Like I'm really getting emotional. <laughs> no, but I think it's, um, I think that there is something to be said. We talk about like the Jarvis family, this, the Jarvis sandwich or whatever. Like there really is a, mm-hmm. a natural innocence in the family dynamic there that makes it a little more harder to watch in terms of, um, hoping that, you know, these people actually survive and, and don't get hacked up by Jason. Well, I think a lot of that had to do with, like, look, so they're filming this movie in 83. It's a year after E.T. with with coming in in 82. And, like, that Return whole, of the Jedi has just come out. Return of the Jedi has just come out. And there are Ewoks <laughs> in it. Um, but I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that that, that whole Spear, Spielberg Amblin mentality was big. And, like, it's not... I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, this is a family that's d- a divorced family with the mother that's single mm. with two, the, you know, the same, almost the same dynamic as, um, as, as E.T. without the, the, the older brother. But, um, and, I, and obviously the reverse with the younger boy as opposed to the older sister. But anyway, I think that that washes over and influences this movie. And I think that's one of the reasons why we start actually seeing the, the younger kids uh, have that agency, that Stranger Things-esque thing that we call it now. I mean, we dub it Stranger Things now, but it goes back to the Amblin uh, era where kids are real. Kids are, you know, like the first time we meet Tommy, he's playing video games. He's doing something that we love. He, we're doing something that at that time, the kids would probably spend their day-to-day doing. So like, it does feel very, very real. And even if we don't believe the fact that he could create <laughs> these masks, which he probably couldn't, um, I think having Tom Savini and making this be a homage to Tom Savini uh, helped because this was kind of what Tom Savini was like growing up. I mean, if you listen back to our interview um, with him from March uh, or not March, April, he talks about how he grew up 
you know, collecting and making masks. I mean, this was Tommy. And so I think having um, the Amblin atmosphere that was creating in the 80s, in addition to all the inside baseball and the, the, the sort of stories that Tom Savini could bring to the table, I think really feed, fed into like a realistic kid character. Um, yeah, I mean, you'll be funny is if um, all the, all the masks that we see in the movie were actually made by like Stan Winston. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was like, oh, the, the, the monster is actually Kevin Yeager contributed. Yeah. <laughs> Savini was too busy <laughs> with the court, with the Crispin Glover death. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, the, the mid '80s was such a boom time for the family dynamic that was created by, like you said, Mike Biamba. I mean, we're Goonies. Is, hey, Goonies, mm-hmm. us starring Mr. Corey Feldman, is, yeah. of course. So that was another huge part. Lost Boys, obviously. So yeah, that whole, I feel like that almost like took over the slasher genre in a lot of ways. Was that aesthetic? Yeah, so this is almost a, a bridge to so that to that they era. They were both aimed in a lot of ways. Both aimed towards kids and teenagers, right? That's correct. And then if you think about something like Dream Little Dream, in which you think um, <laughs> Who thought about, Robert's character is dead. <laughs> well, let's think about it. I mean, you think he's dead, in which he would become an angel, much like Char- much like uh, Corey's angels years later. So I think <laughs> there's another... Christ Almighty. There's something to look into uh, there. To, and then also, uh, to bring it back to uh, <laughs> the chapter, Rob, when... <laughs> I love that scene when Tommy is at the door, and then Rob busts through the door, and then they're like... Tommy, are you okay? Are you safe? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm all right. I'm like, cool, cool, cool. And then they're like, all right, we're going to go next door. And they're like, Tommy, you stay here and lock the door. I'm like, you just busted the door open. I know. <laughs> like, well, hey, I have, I have some thoughts on Rob that connect to Tommy, if that's cool to bring him here. I mean, if we wanted to kind of talk about Rob let's, a little bit. Let's, let's, I got Rob last because got, I got him after the, ki- the other kids are introduced. Oh, okay. So you want, you want to save that to, to button this whole section later on? So keep, um, so yeah, got, I guess so. Want, yeah, that, that makes sense. Wait, if you want to do it now, because if you've got such a tie in the Tommy, we could do it now. Yeah, the, the, the reason why I think, uh, this is why I think the Rob character is important. Um, and even though he has kind of like a hapless, embarrassing death, I think that he... <laughs> embarrassing is the best way to put it. Here, here are some things. I think that uh, he's a prototype for what Tommy is going to grow up to be. In the same ah. way that Garth, a.k.a. Fedora influences a young indie <laughs> later on five years later in the last crusade which funny Mike, enough I cut you off. no 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 yep. I, I i'm gonna beat you, you to it, it because garth yeah. aka richard young will then pop up in the next chapter a new beginning which makes right. me believe <laughs> that we've created a new realm in our podcast lore jones dominion <laughs> well think about this mike um he appears in the indian indian jones movie called the Last Crusade, yes. and this is the final chapter. Yeah, and of course, the Last Crusade. In that sequence, he is anointing a young River Phoenix. River <laughs> Phoenix was in Stand by Me right? with a young Corey Feldman. My, I think you're onto something here. Mike. It's pretty crazy. Uh, well, if we're if we're talking about creating dominions, uh, <laughs> Mr. Rob, Mr. Eric Anderson was also in uh, season four of. Harry Bosch. Oh, my. that's right. Are you Bosch kidding Dominion. me? <laughs> I'm excited now. Are you serious? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big oh character. Oh, my God. Well, well, here, the well, thing that's so cool about it is that, like, you know, he is this father figure, older brother for Tommy. Like, he, and, and you could tell, like, there's what's so cool about the, the nuance of these characters that, like, like, Jarvis is so hungry to have that sort of male influence in his life. Like, when he's dragging him upstairs, there's, it's, it's, it's really like um affecting and 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 i and i think they i mean we'll get into it in august but i i have to imagine they leaned into that as being impressionable on him for when they were 
coming up with the adult well, version of Jarvis. He, he yeah. sort of I becomes like Tommy's yeah. father figure. Yeah. For the five minutes that he knows him. Yeah. <laughs> For the five minutes, like, that he knows well, him. Ten it, minutes it, he knew him. <laughs> well, to be fair, there's actually we talked about the deleted scene of um, the mother, you know, in the bath at the very end. Another deleted scene, there's actually a whole subplot. John Hurd plays Mr. Jarvis. And they'd said, too many people here. We got to get them out of here. So they, they cut them out of the movie. Oh, my God. I think get a much larger response was, than it did, to be fair. Is that true? No, that's not true. <laughs> no, it's not true. Because it's like, it's like, he's like, are you trying to tell me we got some, we got some stranger up in the, in the bedroom with our son? Um, Daddy, I don't, I don't get, get it. Down here. I don't get it. I don't get it. Uh, rest in peace, by the way, John Hurd. Uh, I love John Hurd. Definitely mention that. Cat people. Um, All right, so we have to make sure we keep an eye out for Last Crusade uh, coincidences as we go through the rest of yeah. the remaining eight films. <laughs> and Justin, <laughs> can I introduce the next character? Actually, you can't because I've got something else to say about Mr. Eric Anderson. And Mac, I'm extremely upset that you did not bring this up. Because you know what Ooh. else? E. Eric Anderson starred in a, a show that Mac uh, watched binge watched over the last couple of years oh gilmore girls i no uh right network correct network hmm. mac no, he's felicity's what? father oh that's what I, you're absolutely right i, can't <laughs> See, I went bring to his imdb and i thought i know i've seen this guy a lot and I just attribute. I just attributed to. I saw Bosch and I stopped there because I was like, "Oh yeah, it must have been Bosch." He's <laughs> all more like season four. Now it's uh, JJ's Dominion. Um, well, you speak about JJ, uh, of course, directed Harrison Ford and um, also wrote a movie called Regarding Henry, starring Harrison Ford, who was in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I want to make that clear. Love well, it. Let, and let me and let me bring this back to Harrison Ford in order to introduce the next character. Harrison, you Ford can't yet, Mac. You can't wild. do it next because I've, I've got one more. I've got one more E. Eric Anderson note I need to make clear. Uh, oh, okay. How this. Right. I, I, I tease this I tease this for our part two episode when I said that the actor who plays Sandra appeared in a film with somebody else in the final chapter and that film was Paul Schrader's Patty Hearst E. Eric Anderson and the actor who plays Sandra appear in the same scene for about two minutes and I think it's an interesting coincidence that they happen to be brother and sister in this film yeah that's weird that's weird, right? Yeah. It's really weird. That yeah, is weird. Yeah. Schrader's Dominion. Schrader's Dominion. Schrader's Dominion. <laughs> we just right, opening the worlds. Mac, what do you got? Well, as we all know, Harrison Ford was in Call of the Wild, um, albeit a, computer, a computerized dog. <laughs> oh, here we There's go. a real dog in this movie, and his name is Gordon the Dog. And I just want to throw out there once again, we have a character that can speak to dogs, Tommy Jarvis. Ring the alarm. Move too far from Tommy. Um, I mean, come on. This is, he says, I, I love that scene where he says, come on, Gordon, we're too young for this. And they leave because he knows even Gordon is too young to be seeing these, <laughs> these naked women uh, jumping into <laughs> the lake. Um, I, I have a question. This I is also a, this like to think. For debate. This has been up for debate for, for months now, actually, on this, on this podcast. All right. Was Gordon murdered or did he commit suicide? Oh my god! No, he did neither. So check it out. So I oh, watched I this scene say. multiple times. I like to think that Gordon saw Jason, yelped, and ran for it. Because when you see when they show it, does it does not look like he throws him through the window? It looks like he's 
voluntarily jumping through the window. I think he jumps through the window, and we don't find out what happens to Gordon. No. He's never in the rest of the movie. Well, I got some news for you. I, think he, got, uh, uh, I uh, think he got away. In the video game, we find out that he survived, by the way. I did some research. Oh, really? Yeah. What? But You're I do want to say this. Whether what? or not it's suicide or murder, well, dogs this is always easily, land under four feet, right? This, this is easily the silliest scene of the movie. <laughs> when he jumps out in slow motion of that window yeah. breaking. Like either either you think he's killing himself or Jason has thrown this dog. I think this is easily the movie it's where so people stupid. are people jump through so many windows in this movie. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so many windows breaking in this movie. But they've got like the Friday the thirteenth strings in the background. But I would be interested to see I want people to keep an eye out. Over the next two movie, two films, to see if um, Tommy uh, ever loses his ability to speak to the animals. <laughs> well, I, I think Vanderbilt might have touched upon this. I don't know if it was off mic or not, but I don't, I can't recall any future films. Nope, I lied. I do remember one movie in which a character talks to a dog, and I will leave that hanging. I do remember one moment, so I'm, I'm excited to get to that movie. Yeah. For, for literally only that reason, if that's a hint. <laughs> well, um, they, they did shoot this movie in California, uh, so I have again. to imagine that uh, good old Gordo ran away. Uh, he was a puppy, and he got picked up. The owners renamed him Shadow, and he went on his own adventure uh, with, uh, with, uh, with, he, with... He definitely <laughs> wasn't a puppy in this movie, but we'll go with it because I like where you're going. So <laughs> it's good because he's actually older, so he would, this would have fit the bit. Yeah. So then he went to San Francisco. And, you know, they, oh, they, they, they were homeward bound, so... <laughs> Is that that movie where they killed all the dogs? No, that's Milo Notice. No, that's notice. Uh, Milo Notice. Uh-huh. Yep, you're absolutely right. It is. <laughs> <laughs> homeward bound to the, to the puppy pound. Yeah, which, um, honestly, Homeward Bound has some links to uh, Friday the 13th because uh, I believe the voice of Chance uh, shared a movie with Crispin Glover called Back to the Future. So, Oh, that's right. I, I believe. believe. I believe. I don't... I th- isn't the voice of, oh I thought you were talking about Don Amici's character no no no, no, no. it's just chance yeah no. there's there's Cocoon. a there's a great bit uh, a, an unrealized bit where I, I wanted to do a Halloween costume where I'm Michael J. Fox reading the script for Homeward Bound as as as, as my Halloween <laughs> costume just going like shadow uh, shadow and people <laughs> with a gross vest on <laughs> yeah I just I just carry a microphone around in the script for Homeward Bound and that would have been my well my you Halloween know what Mike costume. I actually did the transition I, I mentioned the gross a gross vest so let's talk about a gross character who wears a gross vest in this movie. Oof. I'm talking about Lawrence Monison as Teddy, Teddy Bear. Of course, Lawrence Monison um, was also the last American virgin a couple and of years before this. People love that movie, that? and I hate it. I, I hate that movie. I, I think it's annoying. I think it's uh, – but people love it. People just absolutely think it's like an easy. It's a great jam. ending. It's got a great ending. Great ending. It's got – uh, the uh, plimsolls are on the soundtrack. It's based on, uh, I believe, uh, Iranian film, the Lemon Popsicle series. Mm. And you have yeah, the there's police. a big discussion on that on the Golden Globus documentary, which again, if people haven't watched, um, you, you, you got to watch this. The Canon documentary is so good. Yeah, there's a huge section on it in there. Um, here's something. Does I, anybody like Ted? No. No. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, he's he would be, I guess, the Ned of the group, right? But here's the here's the problem. There was another character just two movies earlier named Ted, who was also the Ned of the group. <laughs> so we're just reusing the same names and same like phonetic sounding people, Ned, Ted, and Teddy. Well, 
for the uh, for the for the jokesters of the group. Well, I mean, maybe they just got. I guess Cohen and Zito got really like hung up on the teddy bear illusions. They're like, all right, well, we we can't name him something else. It's got to be Ted. They're like, but, but, I, but I really think I really think one of these girls will kiss him if he says that. <laughs> do, uh, if you would you would you want to kiss a teddy bear? <laughs> Oh, you know, we'll, you we'll, guys, oh, God. And this may be the hot take of the episode, but I don't think Teddy's as bad or as despicable as people like to make him out to be. And oh, I, I don't think he's that, despicable. I just think he's a little twerp. He I think forces he's himself annoying. on one of the twins. What are you talking about? He, he tries, <laughs> but I think the whole point of the character is. Now, remember, are these, do you think these characters are teenagers or in their early 20s? Oh, teenagers. Oh, these are teenagers, right? These yeah. are teenagers. Late teens. Okay. Late teens. Um, I think it's just kind of funny that he's the whole time Crispin Glover is going to him for advice on how to score with women. And Ted, Teddy honestly has no idea how to no. do it, but he just puts up a good front. And I think that's an interesting character. And I remember uh, during the Friday the 13th marathon on shutter, right around the beginning of quarantine, a lot of people were talking about what horrible friends were they were, he was to Crispin Glover. But I think it's more of like a Ferris Bueller and Cameron kind of relationship where they need each other. Mm-hmm. And that's just how Im- men who are immature, emotionally immature, uh, speak to each other. Because even when Crispin Glover's character finally does prove that he's not a dead fuck, uh, Teddy's happy for him, even though he's downstairs watching stag movies while everybody else is getting laid. Yeah. Well, Mike, I'm happy you mentioned the stag movies. Oh, God. I, I need a Did you find out where they're from? No, I did not. That would have oh, been amazing. I could not. But um, I, I do want to know if there's a compilation out there or if we just can figure out. We talk about time and place, obviously. How long was he just sitting there laughing at pornography? Oh, all right. So let me talk about that for a second because I think that's the most annoying part of the movie. You know, in, like I know that there's you have to have some reactions with teenagers and you kind of have to over, you have to oversell things. But what the fuck is so funny about this black and white stag film? Like people are like acting like they're watching like the Marx Brothers on screen or something like that. It's ridiculous. I'll tell you what it is. It's like going to a midnight screening at the music box where the audience erupts in laughter when there's a fucking touchtone phone on screen. That's yeah, but, they're not, they're not laughing, but they're not laughing uh, for 25 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, some <laughs> of those honest, crowds though, feel like they Ted, are. Ted is supposed to be high. And, and that's the whole thing. He's supposed to be like stoned. During this, series, right? That is true. true. And that then he true. actually got stoned mm-hmm. for real via the Crystal Lake memories. <laughs> so true. I buy totally buy that. You know what I mean? If you're just you're sitting there tripping out, just like goofing on, you know, you know, 1920s porn or whatever, go for it. And you're a little bit drunk. He's not. Hurt, he's not hurting anybody. Having a good <laughs> time. What, the, the next time I'm watching 1920s porn, I'm gonna keep that in mind. By the way, we prefer to call it adult cinema. Give it the respect that it deserves. Oh, adult cinema. Oh, okay. Excuse, excuse me. Excuse me. Oh, we, he, we. he ends up coming around and congratulates <laughs> Jimmy. He does. Yeah, we'll get to that weird character, <laughs> not Jimmy, but the the person he ends up with later on. There's also something like really creepy with him just standing there and thinking that Jim's still alive, like when he's just, hey, Jimbo. Jimmy, like it's it's very Halloween. Um, not to keep bringing yeah. it back to that, but like it is kind of creepy to think that like he still thinks, even though he died literally around the corner, um, which is kind of odd. But um, he still thinks he's there, and that's there's well, like, Mike, something sad like, about it. It's like the Alice character in, yeah. in, in part one where she wakes up from her nap and everybody's dead. She yeah. doesn't know it yet. It's so creepy. And yeah. I think the whole bit about the computer, which I'm assuming is all improv between him and Crispin Glover, it has to be because mm-hmm. I've. I think it was on the Crystal Lake Memories they mentioned yeah. that they kind of just let those two go at it. Like that little look that he gives where he puts his finger on his chin and Crispin hmm. Glover's just like, 
what? What does it say? Like there's an actual computer there. <laughs> no, it's a funny bit. To me, I'm just saying. Yeah, when a, I saw that, he's a creep. You know what I mean? That's, that's all. When I saw he that be funny scene be when he does that with the with the finger on his lip, it reminded me of the Antonio Banderas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the lean back. I was from, like, uh, oh, this is from, great. From, yeah, from the, oh, lean we can, back. Yeah, we can make that gif. I can make that gif. Yeah. I'll make that happen. Yes, oh, do, do, the, it, do yeah. the, Can you do a side by side? Can you do like a comparison? Oh, yeah, slow dude. it down. Slow it I've down. Got it. I've got it. I've nice. got it. Nice. Well, listen, listen. His death is. Um, this is a good example of when you think about it. It's not some huge makeup sequence, but it still works really well, and you remember it because obviously he's he's up against the, the back of the, the projector or the in front of the projector screen, and then the knife comes through so violently it sticks in him through the screen, and so when we see him fall. He is the one that's actually tearing the screen because yeah. the knife is still stuck in the back of his neck. Like, that's a great effect, yeah. you know, and that's yeah. what sticks with you. It's not so much the blood that you see; it's the, it's the impact, and then just the the aftermath that they do really good in this movie. Um, he has the biggest teeth I have ever seen. At so now, <laughs> he actually looks better older than he did as a kid. Like when I see him in the the Crystal Lake documentaries, I'm like. Man, he really, like, really aged up. Like, <laughs> he looks great. Like, a lot of people in this movie aged aged pretty well. Um, yeah. We'll get to somebody in a few in a few. But um, well, we talked about a lot. We've been talking about him a lot, and we can't put it off any any longer. Uh, we got to talk about the dead fuck himself, Jimbo, played by the uh, the, the great Crispin Glover. And we've already spoken a lot about his career, but um, what else can we say about this character? I mean, let's go. He broke up with Betty, right? Yeah. Hey, think about how awesome Betty felt like the next day. Like, whew, glad I wasn't glad I didn't go up there with them. Yeah. That's a great point. The great what if of the series is what if Betty was still with with Jimbo? Would she have been able to even fit in the car? <laughs> mm. No, probably not. I mean, it was pretty tight in there. I, I think that not only is she thankful, but uh, also a great opportunity if they want to do a, a, a direct sequel to this. Uh, if they did a reboot, <laughs> ignore the rest of the film. It just follows. Yeah, it's survivor's it just follows guilt. Betty, uh, Betty in the city doesn't even have anything to do with this. Like they, she never heard about what happened to Jimmy because she never really cared about him in the first place. So it just like it just follows her in her like life. <laughs> well, I think what happens to her is that um, a, 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 an LP is sent back to her, and it's that song by the band Lion that <laughs> love that, is that, a lie that Jim loved to dance to with her. They used to have a great laugh about it. And I think it's a real tragic character that that, that Betty becomes. And uh, I'd, like, I'd like to see her come back for the uh, 45th anniversary. We're hoping, fingers crossed, LBJ still has the rights to Friday 13th, and we see her in, a, in 2025 in some iteration. Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, fingers crossed. But listen. Jimmy's a great soft He steals boy. every scene he's in, right? Yeah. He steals every scene he's in. Love him. I love him in this. Uh. One, I mean, one of my favorite one of my favorite lines of his is when he's talking to Teddy in the kitchen and they're talking about the twins and he says, "You've got the hot one," mm-hmm. and it's like uh, they look the, exactly the same. That's just very bit. funny to me. I, I think he's got this like the de- the whole dead fuck narrative for him. Um, you know, on paper, it just seems so uh, like whatever, like throwaway. But I, I think there's like a real like he finds depth with it, and you could tell it like really does bother him and like the way that he keeps bringing it up and. Um, even the way that he, like Glover does this thing. I don't know if it just was by accident or just because they're improving, but like when he's like re- retorting back, like he kind of skips over his words sometimes. He's like, I, you know, I told you, I, Hey, I told you not to do that. And it like, it's so there's an affectation to, uh, his, like his reactions that 
become so real and like he, he so he for me he's like he's one of the best like um not nerd or geek in this because he's not really that but like you know like a soft way like in and so i think he's unique in that way like in terms of like all the link ladder qualities of this movie with the the cast uh i think he kind of pronounces that the most um just he there's so much to him and he's such a minor character like it's so weird to you have to keep reminding yourself like yeah he's not even the main character of this movie at all He's fun. Oh, sorry. I thought, want to say something. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Mac was about to say something, so I can. No, imagine. no. I, I mean, you know, I, I like him. I think, uh, you know, sometimes I'm like, are we putting a lot of emphasis on this guy because we know that he's in other things mm-hmm. and actually had a career or whatever? But, um, but he does give a gr- pretty great performance in this. It's, it's pretty memorable, and and that dance scene alone is brilliant. Um, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to say to Jimmy, uh, you should have stayed in bed. Yeah. She told you to stay in bed. He goes downstairs. He should have stayed there. Uh, yeah, maybe he would have lived maybe a few minutes longer. <laughs> is that the button on this, like the post credit scene is just him in bed um, saying, I wonder where I put that corkscrew. <laughs> <laughs> like he, he did stay in bed the whole time. He never went down. Jason forgot about him. But y'all, corkscrew to the hand, mm. butcher cleaver to the head. Mm. Oof. Violent, violent death. Rough. Rough. And that was, of course, done with a reverse shot of the cleaver um, being shot, leaving his head, and then they reversed it to make it look like it was jamming into his head. Kind of like the Don of the Dead. Nice surreal look. Yeah. Um, is yeah. Jimmy the body that is, like, nailed to the doorway? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then it's another brutal <laughs> thing <laughs> when Jason just rips, rips him off the door. Uh. And it's just like, give this guy a break. He's already dead. <laughs> it's just pretty brutal. I like the fact that I always imagine these guys when they're setting up their, their post-kill presentations, like he's just hammering spikes into people's <laughs> nails, you know, making sure it's balanced just right. <laughs> making sure, because obviously when they go in the house the first time, he's not there. Yeah. And then when they're running out of the house, now he's there. I, it's just I love these little these little moments, the behind the scenes magic of the, of the psycho killers. Well, in hey, movies. Jason runs in this one, so he's probably quickly doing these things, you know. And he has a he yeah. has a he has the he knows where everything is, <laughs> which is great. He does. He scoped the house. Yeah. he's a real houseman. Um, uh, I think you allude to it, Mike, but I think Jim is a true a one in one. I don't know any other characters in the franchise that are quite that are quite like him because mm-hmm. he's not. Not really. He's kind of the nerd, but he's not really the nerd, no. obviously, because he's had a girlfriend and he's gonna end up with a beautiful woman an hour into the movie. He's not the jock, right? He's not. I don't. There's nothing. He's like you. You can't really describe the character. Well, he's kind of like say it's Chris. It's Crispin Glover. He's like pulled out of a, a John Hughes movie. Like if we want to talk about any of characters that have like '80s tropes here, like he's only an '80s trope in the sense that. Out of all the characters in the Friday the 13th movies, I don't really know any that had like that are coming off of like a, a heartbreak. Um, and that's such a vulnerable period for any teenager. And so in a way, like he's he's in such a unique position compared to like any of the other characters. But that's such a that's such a trope of like the John Hughes movies and like especially like yeah. even like the Brat Pack movies that would come later. Um but it, it's 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 cool how it works here because uh, it's there's like a sort of redemption to him, but it, inevitably it's like such tra- it, there's such tragedy to it because he he's just like brutally killed, um, and not only that, but like they foreshadow his his uh, his brutal death because they like they literally show like Teddy holding the corkscrew early on in the movie. 
Um, and you also see there's a there's a POV of the corkscrew going into the beer when they're about to chug it. Mm. So you see the corkscrew. It's a uh, it's Zito's uh, Zito's <laughs> check, corkscrew. Chekhov's corkscrew. Chekhov's gun. There's also there's also uh, some other footage that was cut from the film where Jason's watching that dance sequence and just shaking his head. Like, I gotta get rid of this guy. Imagining Jason with his arms crossed and like kind of shaking his eye. Oh, He's going. Be a tough one. Uh, yeah, yeah. I gotta get rid of this guy. He's like lion. I this guy isolated. I don't think so. Um, something else I'd like to point out, just because I'll never be able to point it out in, in any other podcast, is that Crispin Glover's father, Bruce Glover, is also a great, weird uh, character actor. He played Mister Went in Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, that's right, <laughs> Mister Went, Mister Kid of um, great Bond memorable and early an early uh, <laughs> portrayal of homosexuality as villains in a James Bond movie. Oh. Is Mister Went, Mister Kid? Great unnerving performance, by the way, in that movie. And of course, he also appears um, at the very end of Chinatown. I'll, he's not the one that says it, but he's he's the partner of the guy who says, "Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown." Ah, oh, great scene. So, uh, good actor. Yeah, a good strange. Uh, father-son duo of acting, Bruce and Crispin Glover. Uh. Um, well, listen, we got to move on to our next character who um, I would label this person as, uh, he kind of sucks. You know what I mean? I'm not saying like the, the actor's bad. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm just saying that this guy kind of sucks. We're talking about Jack, um, played by... I'm sorry. I'm, we're talking about the character of Paul, I was gonna played say, by Jack. Alan Hayes, <laughs> who is like the character Jack from Friday the Thirteenth. Okay, if we, you yeah. know what I'm saying. Uh, I'm gonna say. uh, this this actor, like so many actors in this movie, and of this period, um, would go on to be soap stars. Like he was in Bold mm-hmm. and the Beautiful as a main cast member for a couple years, but I will say this notably, he wrote an episode of the Twilight Zone during the Forrest Whitaker era. Oh. How about that? Huh. Interesting. Um, a, a Three Stooges fanatic. I, I have my notes here. <laughs> I think he's just sointly and does like the curly bit, you know. Uh, yeah. Mike Vanderbilt, what do you think about his, his death scene in terms of brutality? Oh, oh Jesus Christ. It's bad. One of the, I think Paul Oof. is one of the most forgettable characters in this movie. <laughs> like, as I was yeah, watching it too. a couple times, I couldn't remember how he died or even like who he was dating. Of course, he had, a, he had trouble remembering who he was there with, too, who mm-hmm. he was dating. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, in this film. I would say the most brutal. Mm-hmm. No, second most brutal death. Yeah, because when you look at it, not only is he stabbed with it, but then he pulls the trigger. Yes. Yeah, which I, makes it even more brutal. I, I think he's honestly he has the most painful death out of the entire uh, movie, and possibly even just. The franchise. I mean, you guys talked about like the third movie with like uh, obviously the the machete groin injury. This is up Ugh. there. I mean, it yeah. hurts. En- it hurts enough to get kicked in the crotch, uh, to <laughs> get a something prodded right on you and lifted out of the, the the water, and then also shot into. You're still alive. Like you're not. Yeah. Uh, you're like fucking suffering through this the entire time. It, it, it's a very. Uh, it's a moral death, like a morality death, because you know obviously mm-hmm. he was thinking with uh, his other head. And uh, and he lost it. So um, and I don't mean decapitate it, but uh, so I think it's fitting thematically, uh, and I think that's the only thing that defines him. Because I agree, Mike. I think he's so easily uh, lost in the in the in the realm because Doug also has dark hair. <laughs> so it's like yeah. Well, but Doug is like Doug is so much blue cap. 
<laughs> Doug is so much better looking than Paul. Like Paul is oh, like, God, yeah. He, he is so overshadowed. Um, and like, you know, back to what you're saying about the death. Like, I mean, Eddie Murphy said it in raw, like you could just graze nuts and that's mm-hmm. enough. So yeah. yeah. Spear gun to the, to the crotch region. Awful. Terrible. But he's, he's also a really lousy, not only just from, you know, kind of womanizing, but his, his, his womanizing causes the death of his own girlfriend. So, um, he wasn't you know. even very good at womanizing either. No. Like, he, he, did he have sex? No, he did have, he did have sex with Sarah, not Sarah, the other, what? I can't remember. Sam, Sam yeah. uh, the night before, because uh, that little mm-hmm. pervert Tommy was yep. watching. Yeah, that's right. So they're together. They're an item. Um, well, not, not a lot to say about Mac. Do you have anything to say about Paul? I have nothing else to say about Paul. Forgettable. Yeah. <laughs> that death is brutal, but I didn't, I did not remember it until I saw it. And then I forgot the character existed by the end of the movie. Here, here, here's, here's a, here's, here's, here's a fun connection that could have been, that could, they could have done. Mm-hmm. Um, what if Paul Guthrie was the same Paul that, uh, Annie calls in Halloween, <laughs> oh, and which was voiced by John Carpenter, but you know, they could have just changed things around and been like, you know, Hey, uh, I was out in Haddonfield a few years ago. But hey, I knew a Tommy. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, let's move on to somebody. I, I, I have to, can I kick this one off discussion-wise? Uh-huh. All right. I want to talk about um, Paul's girlfriend, Sam, played by Judy Aronson, who was kind of the Marcy of this movie, you know? She's the Marcy. Um, I remember her also from Weird Science. Mm-hmm. In which she yeah, was, I like her uh, one of the, yeah, yeah, she's yeah. one of the ladies that uh, ends up with. Uh, I think, I, I think she ends up with the the brunette kid who we never saw with again, Wyatt. Yeah, Michael she Hall. ends up with yeah, Wyatt. With Wyatt. Um, I, I listen. We're 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 a pretty cool podcast, you know. I, I this is like one of the most beautiful women on the, in the history of the planet, and I remember I had such a huge crush <laughs> on her from Weird Science, <laughs> and then when I saw this movie years later as, a, as an older boy, I mean, just. Beautiful, beautiful, and she's still she hasn't aged a bit. She looks great today. I'll say that Judy Aronson, I, you look great. I, I, you're memorable, and and, and you're wonderful. I think she. I mean, if I may be crass for a minute, I think she is the hottest girl in this. Entry. That's fine. That's there's nothing crass about that. Wait, she's wait, the most beautiful woman in the entry. You said in in the entry or the franchise? Because in entry. this entry, in this entry. Okay, all right. Because look, we're we're gonna have a beautiful. We're gonna have a beauty. I know, I know you're talking about. Characters about my, oh. Well, listen. There's uh, a difference lives. between hot and beautiful. There's a difference. <laughs> no, now hold on. Now there's a difference between hot and beautiful, mm-hmm. and we will save that debate for, <laughs> for August. Lewis. Yeah, for August. Yeah. I know you're talking about. Okay. Um, yeah, she's absolutely gorgeous in this. But uh, anyway, I, I I noted that she does pull the drowning Ned bit from the original. Mm. She fakes yeah. drowning. She must have seen that bit. one. She must have seen that movie. <laughs> she, she, saw five years. she saw it back in 1979. <laughs> her death is brutal. Um, mm-hmm. Not only is her death itself, which is a great effect once again of the machete going through the raft. You can kind of hear the the raft squelching. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, yeah, it's really disturbing. But the conditions under which that scene happened. I mean, they were they were filming this during real freezing conditions. And I think she said she got hypothermia, and, and Ted yeah. White, who played Jason, actually stood up for her and said, look, we're not going to do this scene any longer until you get this girl some help. So it's always funny imagining somebody running around in the Jason mask demanding help for a, a fellow co-cast member. And, and Ted White has that great like uh, hillbilly accent. Like, Joe, you need to get this girl out of the water. I don't no, care what's going on yeah. in here. I don't care if you get the, the shot done or not. Like I think she's about to die there. 
<laughs> and he, and he honestly, close to how he sounds. Didn't he like he, he took his name off the film because of the 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 rivalry between him and Zito? I thought I thought like and. Uh, <laughs> what, I and mean, he, hates, he hated Corey Feldman. His yeah. hate for Corey Feldman is so pure. He's a little brat. He said that when he burst through the window, he really, he was like really grabbing him in that scene. Apparently. <laughs> oh my nightmare. god! He said he really, yeah, genuinely was scared because of that. Yeah. Well, I, you know what? I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, again, as 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 the case for many of the people in this movie, to, let's be honest. I, not a lot to say about Sam. No, she's she's friends with Sarah, who we'll talk about in a little while. She's a little. She, you know what? I will say this about her. She seems like a good person. Yeah, I mean, she's obviously, you know, she knows that she's being mistreated. I mean, that's why she yeah. she leaves. She speaks out for it, you know, and then he still acts like a dickhead. So, and it's unfortunate because she I likes also... she's she's funny. She likes to party. She likes to drink. She wants to fuck. And like this guy's not even paying attention to her. It's very disappointing. Yeah, this guy's out of his fucking mind. This Paul guy. But was, I do like head. that. I, I do like that scene in the beginning where she's talking to Sarah because it kind of dispels a lot of that. You know, like she's like, I got my reputation when I was in sixth grade, and like none of this shit's true. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. like, people believe it. Yeah. I let them believe it because it puts me in a light that you know, like my boyfriend's not going to leave me anytime soon because like thinks I'm great kind of thing. I don't know. I kind of thought that was interesting because you don't usually see them talk about that kind of stuff or dispel that kind of stuff in movies such as like you know, movies like this. But mm-hmm. uh, and I, I like her relationship with uh, with Sarah in the, in the movie. I think it's it feels like honest. Like I, I, they don't show it, but I feel like after she initially pulls her into the water that she probably got over and they probably had a good time. <laughs> We're all friends here. Yeah. Well, listen. We should talk about uh, Sarah, who played by Barbara Howard, who, by the way, is now a psychotherapist. Oh wow! For the last twenty years, psychotherapist. Not didn't do a lot of acting after this. Does that mean she's um, a therapist who's a psycho? Or I, I have this one word, so I'm assuming it's she's just a psychotherapist. Um, I think I'm in love. I think I'm in love. She is easily uh, got, the most obvious case of. I think we, we alluded to this earlier. Of you have sex, you die. Yeah, Mac comments. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, absolutely. But um, I think she she plays that character really genuine. Mm-hmm. I think that scene when she goes upstairs and she like goes out of her way to say goodnight to Teddy, and has no reason to be nice to Teddy, you know. But like, it's like you believe they're all friends mm-hmm. in that sequence. Uh, I believe that she's truly in love with Doug. Um, I think it's absolutely frightening to me when we are with her and you know she is the last of these kids alive in mm-hmm. the house. Yeah, yeah, That always gets to me in these movies. And so I love when she's just walking around in the towel, like going back to the bathroom and like asking for Doug because you know everyone's dead. And it's just like, it's just that, it's like that moment in, in, uh, in two. Um when uh, Jenny's like just like going around like you know, and and everyone's gone, you know, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, and that God, oh God, the axe thrown through the door is just brutal. <laughs> it's yeah. just that's a brutal. Example, they didn't see a, it coming. It's a great effect. It's a great effect. It doesn't mean it has to be some real big gore scene. It's just a great effect of the, and then she falls down. You know, I I have um, in my notes. Yeah. Uh, she reminds me of uh, Laura Martinez. Uh, <laughs> which is some inside baseball on our end because that's one of our friends. But I, I could not stop thinking of Paul's wife. Oh, man. Now I'm thinking about Laura with, like, frizzy really? hair and without yeah. glasses. I yeah. can see it now. Yeah. Frizzier hair without glasses. Yeah. 
We'll do a side by side mm. with our permission and put it up on our Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who yeah, who wiped right. this? Look, I don't. I don't. That didn't ring true to me, but I. I, I don't know. Well. I, we'll, we'll get her on the line. We'll get her on the line in a couple minutes here. We'll have her pull. <laughs> yeah, let's get her on. What do you think? Do you look like this person? But uh, yeah, they're, uh, they're, 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 their coupling okay. reminds me so much of just, you know, Kevin Bacon and uh, his girlfriend in that movie, um, that coupling from the original. Um, so they would have become, they would have become uh, Jack and Marcy. Yeah. I think that that's what they, they, they remind me of the most of where it's like this genuine couple hmm. that are having a genuine moment that is just devastatingly crushed by these assholes in the woods. <laughs> well, and, and Mike, yeah, you, mentioned, you, you mentioned crushed. I mean, let's talk about Doug who gets his head crushed against the, the bathroom wall while in the shower. Um, and in real life. Yeah, another brutal death. By, wait, well, hold on a second. What now? No, well, I mean, he pretty much smashed his head on against the wall uh, during oh, the filming like of this. He, that Peter Barton died. Oh, God, no, 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 no. He's still gorgeous and beautiful. but no, Fa- no. Famous soap star. Mike Vanderbilt, have you seen Hell Knight? I have seen Hell Knight with Linda Blair. He's in it. Yeah, he's uh, it's a, that's a good one. That's been on Shutter forever. It's been on my watch list. I'll get to it eventually. <laughs> no, that one's worth watching. Absolutely. He wouldn't say that because he hated it. So he didn't want to be in horror movies anymore. And it was uh, <laughs> he had to be convinced to be in this movie, um, which is kind of funny. But um, well, if, even if you don't see it, if you just pick up the back of the video box, there he is with his wet hair and a, yeah. and a, and a gross hand approaching. So oh. that's your legacy, Mr. Barton. Yeah. Um, sorry, sorry, you don't want to be in horror movies anymore. I, I love these people that are just that are so above it all. Like, who the fuck are you? Like, yeah, anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. Um, so yeah, we talked. You know, the Doug and Sarah thing is 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 there to to sadly have Sarah uh, lose her virginity and then be brutally murdered brutally <laughs> shortly murdered. thereafter. Well, you mentioned and, that this is probably one of the purest examples of sex equals death in this film and possibly in the Friday the Thirteenth series but it's interesting because i don't feel like uh barney cohen the screenwriter or zito is like making it a point to say that it's some moralistic point that no, if you have no, sex no, no. you die it's more like like no matter what the world's gonna crush you mm-hmm. yeah i like that i like that i mean i don't like that idea but you can I like you can idea. have the you know I mean? best <laughs> moment have the best sex in a shower which is hard to do anyway like i can't imagine the sex uh, sex in a shower just isn't that good water acts as an anti-lubricant it's, the, it's, the better, it's better than the, the weight pool. and it's a nightmare <laughs> and 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 as a man you're gonna be you're not standing under the you're not standing under the faucet let me tell you that's just not gonna happen Mm-mm. but like not, even if the sex wasn't that great to lose your virginity to think you fell in love and this is how this is the, that's what the world's gonna do to you tragedy Tough beat for Sarah. Tough beat for our, our, our boy Doug. Um, so we're, we're kind of do this in, in terms of who's introduced first. So somebody that we gotta talk about. We've we have not talked about her. Mm-hmm. Is Hitchhiker played by Bonnie Hellman? Yeah. Which I think <laughs> this, this is one of the more meta. Discussion. I think this is one of the more meta moments because you know the group passes her, doesn't pick her up. Um, she's the hitchhiker that's like almost feels like perfunctory and nece- like as if they're like, oh yeah, remember this? That's been in every, all pretty much all the other movies. Well, here's the hitchhiker, and then she just like eats this banana and dies. Like it's so fucking pointless. And she even gets the <laughs> knife through the throat, like like yeah. Jack does in the first one. I do like her sign where it says, I think some like peace and love, and then she flips Canada, it around. It's says, Can- fuck you. Canada, Canada or bust, I think. Oh yeah, and then she flips it and says, fuck you. Yeah. It's a good little 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 piece of business. So this shit's happened to her before. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, yeah. and I will say Bonnie Hellman. Um, not sure what happened to her, but hey, we're talking about her 35 years later. So a, lo- a lot of hippies in this the, movie. She's 
She's done in Crystal Lake Memories. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm saying in terms of her career. I, you know. Well, hey, her <laughs> so manager told her not to movie. do it, and she did <laughs> uh, it anyway. So it's probably a good thing that she did it, I guess. A lot I would of hippies say so. A lot of hippies passed their prime hanging out in like around Crystal Lake between uh, right? Chili and um, Cheech and Chong from Part Three, and this one like it it, it maybe uh, just holdovers from the '60s. Well, I think because the writers were probably hippies. Yeah, back yeah. in I mean, the day. You know what I mean? Back in the or 60s. maybe there's some lore where they're like all these hippies are still like coming back from like Max Yeager's farm uh, in Woodstock, New York. Well, I think also like... if you look at the time, I think Grateful Dead were touring around uh, Crystal Lake at the time. So I think <laughs> yeah. they were doing some big festivals uh, the whole yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. They were doing festivals the whole week. That's why we uh, see uh, the yeah. Cheech and Sean characters of Chili and Chuck in part three and, and obviously this movie. Mm. Okay, we got to get to a character and this might be my little hypothesis for the episode. This is the type of character who who um, people who don't actually watch these movies always assume all the women are mm-hmm. in the horror movies. And that is Tina, who's one of the twins played by Camilla Moore, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't she like the stereotypical, oh, all women in these movies are sluts, all, movie, all women in these movies are, 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 are assholes. Doesn't mm-hmm. she kind of fit that, that stereotypical bill, really? I mean, think about everything she does in this movie. Yeah, I mean, because it's the yin and yang because her sister Terry is the one that's more apathetic and wanting to leave and go and be, you know, a, a little more logical. Um, and she's the one that, like, no, I just want to drink and party and, you know, just see where, ha- see where the night takes us. Um, but I agree, like, it, there's not very... There's, no, there's not a lot of depth to this. And she just says... Yeah, what I she, mean, the twins are there for the bit. Yeah. Oh, look, it's hot twins. And twins. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a hankering for some double mint gum. <laughs> I think she was probably... I think she was in those commercials. Yeah. Are they I think it? more... I, if I had a twin, I would definitely... We would. I would make sure that we wore the same clothes all the fucking time. Well, your parents probably funny. would too, because that seemed to be the case <laughs> with any twins for me growing up. Especially like I, identical twins. What a nightmare in life. Just, let's, let's make it even more confusing for people who can't tell you apart. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's, let's like put the, you in the same stuff. The guy who's in uh, Gremlins 2 and in uh, Terminator 2. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, hell, Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2. Oh, That's yeah. Because right. her sister. twin plays her in that thing. Um, Camel Moore, she was in a bunch of soaps and... The soaps owe a lot to the Friday the 13th series, or maybe vice versa. Some of of them were coming off of soaps. Some of them were going to be going into soaps. Her death is much like Gordon's death. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Slow motion, music, windows exploding. I do like... You figure like, oh, he's just going to throw out the window. I do like the car windows exploding. That's a, that's a cool effect when well, did, she hits that car. Did you notice that when she lands, her head hits the metal bar that's like <laughs> on top of the car? Yeah, that's some, that's some, that's some stuff right there. That's got to hurt. It's probably all like rubber bars and stuff like I'm that, sure. I'm assuming. Yeah. And then there's an explosion. Also, is this – no, I was going to say this is the first slow motion death, but you'd count in the first one before the credits. Mm-hmm. Right, that's the first slow motion, the first slow motion death. And also Mrs. Voorhees' death. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, there you go. Yeah. Um, and even, well, we think Jason's dead in the second one, but that doesn't actually happen. Yeah. Now, her sister, I noticed, especially this go-around when we're really, really focusing on breaking this film down, as all the, <laughs> the great film critics do. Um, her sister is absolutely, does absolutely nothing in this movie. Nothing. Terry literally just sits on a chair in the corner of the room. Um. And and plays oh I'm the twin isn't this a funny bit right mm-hmm. and she actually did not Carrie Moore aside from a couple times working with her sister 
did not appear to be an actual actor. So I think that she would literally just show up as like, hey, we're, we're attractive looking twins. Well, that was the case. They were going to, they actually, when they found out that they had twins or where she was yeah. a twin, they're like, all right, let's get her other sister also. And let's get her in there. Great, let's have her sit on the chair. Yeah. I will say though, I do like, um, we, we, we praise this movie for its, uh, its great uh, special effects. I do like how we see her getting killed on the side of the, the house because of the, the lightning flashing and the shadow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, I like yeah. that Zito flourish there. I like that a lot. It's a good one. But then they've got to drive it home with the, the spirit of the back. Yes. Ouch. Which I, which I do not expect every time. I'm like, oh, yeah. good yeah. God. Um, does anybody remember, Mac, do you know what her famous last words were in this movie? Oh, I, <laughs> I, I know what uh, it is. <laughs> The ter- the one that gets speared outside. Yeah, yeah, Terry. No, what? What's what the sister? They? What's the sister's name? Uh, it's it's Terry and uh, Tina. Or Tina, Tina and Terry. Tina's the one who yeah. sleeps with uh, Jimmy. Yeah, I think it's isn't it Tina? You're such a slut. Yep, you slut. <laughs> yeah, that's her last lines uh, to her sister in the last. That's kind of sad. <laughs> now is Tina's <laughs> last lines? You know. You're incredible. Or no, it's not. Never mind. Because they then they talk about her, him they being a dead fuck. They talk about for okay. a while, yeah. yeah. I think okay. she's just asking where Jimmy is, and then she gets... She looks out the window for about five minutes before getting thrown out. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my beer? Um, you know, we, we talked about... I guess it's time to throw this in here. Um, we talked a lot about how, how we didn't... Oh, Mike, uh, Vanderbilt, I think you had said growing up, you don't rem- you didn't remember seeing Jason's breath. No, because yeah. Because grainy, you know cable or VHS stuff like that something I picked up this time I never noticed before is when Rob returns to the campsite when Jason's left all that stuff oh, there yeah you see him walking away yeah I, it's, first time I, I noticed, noticed that, that before. when I rewatched it yesterday absolutely yeah really yeah if you watch it again if you see him like kind of peering through the trees you see the, the tent Mac and behind the tent yeah. you see Jason walking it's away it's creepy yeah yeah just stuff like uh, that you know digital that like I didn't shot. see that yeah well and that's where he kind of acts a lot like Michael because he, he, when, when Rob is called away from the tent, that's when he goes in there and breaks his shit, and then he goes back, mm-hmm. and then or then he just escapes. He, he gets out there, so he's, like, fucking with Rob. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, and something else to note, everybody listening, um, that, that will not be the last time you see a yellow tent. No. <laughs> we'll be talking about that in September. Um, <laughs> gang, I, I can't believe it. We've talked about all 87 characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot in this one. I can't believe it. The Halloweenies right. have talked about all 87 characters in Friday the 13th, the final chapter. So that leaves us no room but to cue old Freddy Krueger to say uh, great graphics. Oh, wait. Did we talk wait, wait, about what? Rob? Yeah, we talked about him oh, a long yeah. time ago. We talked Rob. Oh. Oh, I, thought Tommy, you were wait- I, I thought you were building him up for the last. That's right. No, but then we ended up talking about him earlier. So for, yeah, for we're keeping all this in here. This is the magic of podcasting. It's unpredictable. <laughs> So I have to say it, but that's great though, because it gives me another reason just to say, great graphics. Ah! What do you know? I beat my high score. (laughs) Ah! Uh, Love that quote. (laughs) Great quote. I mean, where do we begin? Uh, yeah. yeah, the digital effects in this were amazing. Uh, I really think that uh, ILM, the George Lucas. The, I mean, touch. they 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 built that house next door uh, completely out of computer animatics, and it's wild. I mean, yeah, they, they use the same stuff from Tron to build to construct those houses <laughs> yeah. from across each other. Oh, no, but Tron seriously, this movie is all about at the end of the day what what Tom Savini uh, brought to it, and 
you know, the second and third one obviously have some memorable kills and some, some good makeup, obviously. I mean, these are professional human beings. But you can just tell when Tom Savini is involved in something. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know. Where, where do we even begin? We've, we've talked about it throughout this entire episode, whether it's hiring him because they really wanted to finish off with a bang and just the, the great effects he brought, if not even so much gore, just some of the great special effects he brought back to the franchise. I think he kind of goes out with and the it, swan song with like Jason's death. I mean, like, granted, when you watch the extended version of it, you get to kind of see the real full animatic. That's like uh, the, the animation that they, he brought to like the actual dummy and all. But mm-hmm. it's still fucking awesome and impressive when you see that head yeah. slide down that machete. And it's just such a cool effect. I love it. And it's so in sync with what he yeah. did with Dawn of the Dead. For me, that's like my favorite graphic. I think, or graphic. I think that's my favorite SFX, or you know, that he does there, or effects, makeup effects. Yeah, I like how the MPAA allowed them to actually. They do it. There's two shots of it, which is cool. It's not like you just see him that first time slide down. They actually cut back to it again after Trish reacts, and you see him slide down a little further. Yeah, which I appreciated. Thank you, MPAA, for once (laughs) for allowing that moment to happen. Mm -hmm. I would have loved to see the alternate death though with the microwave blowing Jason's head up. Yeah, well, you got to keep him alive, uh, you know. So oh yeah, you know somehow. that's exactly what that was too, and that's probably mm-hmm. why I, 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 I do. I think it's a great effect, but like it kind of bothers me because it's like, oh, this is cynic. This is cynical because they know that they're going to bring him back again. Well, they got yeah. notes. I mean, they had notes that were strangely enough to like the way the machete had to hit the head. They you couldn't go a certain way, and that's when I think the crew were like, oh fuck, they're planning on making a sequel anyway. Like, yeah. Well, like these movies are always so clever, like. If, if it had bombed, they would have said, yeah, well, you know, we knew it was going to bomb, so mm-hmm. we wanted to make sure we killed him. And if it comes back, it's like, well, you know, there's always a chance. <laughs> they're, always, they're always, you know, clearing their bases. But um, I don't know. I mean, uh, this whole episode has basically been about what Tom Savini did. Yeah. So I'm not sure. Well, Mike, did, were there any other anecdotes? Because obviously you interviewed him, which is on our, our Halloweenies thread. Yeah, I Any mean, other anecdotes about him him working on this movie? No, I mean he he loves this movie. I mean he mm-hmm. he said that out of uh, the two, you know, there's always the the sort of memories of like starting out from the beginning and kind of the anarchic qualities of the first one. Um, but he said with this one, he really wanted to make sure that he got like a really fucking top notch crew to pull off like stuff that he really wanted to do and stuff that he had learned up to that point. Um, so he says that he really looks back on this one fondly. Uh, just because there was an ease to it. You know, he didn't feel like as if he was um, up against the wall and kind of like, uh, you know, you didn't have situations where, you know, like the Kevin Bacon's death in the first one where they literally had to like spend hours trying to make sure and like, you know, at last minute, like use their mouths to fucking pump the blood and stuff like that. So it it wasn't as um, freewheeling as that. And so for him, he he looks back at it as as this being like his, his, his final, his great hour uh, with uh, the franchise. And then also he really loves the fact that it really does feel like an homage to him with Tommy Jarvis. And he got to feel um, there was like a responsibility that he, he got to have where he got to come back and kill his own monster. Cause he still says it. I mean, it mm. was his, div- you know, Jason was his creation in a sense. So, um, you know, sorry if Victor Mancini maybe <laughs> disagrees or whoever, you know, says that they created the monster, but I'm going with Savini on this one, and I and I think that I think that's the way that the love that he brings to this movie with some of his effects and and everything. It, it does feel like a um, there's like a poetry to it with uh, mm-hmm. with with the Savini's involvement in here. I don't agree. Anybody else? Anything else? Because we're going to be talking about him a couple more times, believe it or not, in a, in a couple upcoming categories. Yeah. Anything to add? 
Mm-hmm. Anybody? Nope. Not me. Mac? Well, I mean, and no, it's no. funny because Savini wasn't initially hired back for this. No. There was another special effects artist who uh, Savini took a lot of the crew from, I believe, right? Damn it. Yeah, it was a guy that was uh, nominated for some Academy Awards, I think. And I, I don't have that. Remember. He decided. If you've got that pulled up, well, I did not know that. It was in the Crystal Lake, memory, Crystal Lake Memories. He, they mentioned that he was nominated, uh, that he there was like personality differences or something, and that's why he decided to leave. But I can't Zito remember what always, the film Zito always, Zito always wanted Savini. They had another guy on set, and Savini ended up just taking over his crew. Stan Winston. <laughs> well, look, if you figure it out, we'll get back to it. I'm sure it's yeah. just some, no offense, other person. <laughs> it wasn't like they got some landmark uh, makeup artist, I'm sure. Uh, but we got to move on to our next category, uh, the name of which comes from this particular film, and that, of course, is called Help, He's Killing Me, He's Killing Me. <laughs> Okay, so for this category, this is what we've considered to be the most uh, effective death in the movie. Mac, what do you have? I I got to go with Tommy killing Jason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whether or not he actually does die in this film, uh, that was the intention of the movie initially. And I think that... Just the repeated machete to to mm-hmm. the head and the body and him saying "die, die, die" is one of is if not the one of the most memorable uh, sequences in this franchise. And mm-hmm. uh, I, it just it stuck with me when I was a kid, and I I love it. I think it's brutal. And yeah, that like we just talked about it, but the machete into the head and sliding down the head like that's just it's easily the most memorable kill in, in uh, to me at least. Yeah, I concur. I think that there's there's something so cool about how much attention they gave to this death. And it reminds me of kind of like what H2O was like, you know, where, you know, you see the head come off and it was like, all right, well, the creators definitely came in with the attention of actually killing this monster. And I believe that with this movie, you know, and mm. the, the, the fact that you literally have <laughs> a long shot of Feldman just fucking attacking him is, I mean, where do you go from there? Um, well, the thing is, we always complain in movies about, why did you leave the knife? And here's what happens when you don't leave the yes. knife behind. <laughs> you know what I mean? You make sure that guy is dead. Well, and that's what's um, so cool about Tommy is that, like, you know, if, if he's supposed to be us, you know, the kids that are watching these movies and hoping that they yeah. can be part of it, we always say, like, oh, well, you should have done this. And Tommy does that. He sees the fingers move, and he's like, no, no fuck you, Trish. Well, let me grab the machete ah, and, like, just kill him. <laughs> like, immediately. Like, doesn't even hesitate. Um, so I love that. I don't know. It's, there's, there's something to appreciate there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, and because it is an actual death, I mean, even if you go th- look at the rest of the series, he is dead in the, after this one. So that, for yeah. me, is the best yeah. death. If if we want to say non-Jason, the Crispin Glover double whammy of corkscrew to the hand, cleaver to the face is pretty brutal in its succinct nature and it happens so quick. Both, yeah. both the actions happen so quick. Um, Vanderbilt, what about you? What do you, what do you well, have to say? First off, the name of the guy was Greg Canham. Who quit the project uh-huh. due to personality differences? And he was one of the things. One of the differences was that he was going to be allowed to create a completely unique Jason. But then he started getting notes from the studio 
and he had had enough, and that's how we ended up getting Tom Savini in that movie. I wonder but, if there was some differences with Joseph Zito, because by, by some accounts, not just with um, the Judy Aronson situation on the raft, apparently even Ted White, who did not like Corey Feldman, said that Joseph Zito was not very good to Corey Feldman. So I, I wonder if some of this stuff falls down Joe Zito's. Zito, Zito sounds like he's kind of a reckless director of that Landis mold. Totally. Anything to get and, the and shot. When I say all this, I'm not even saying anything to denigrate Joseph Zito because, listen, here's the bottom line, everybody listening out there. Just because you're a wonderful human being doesn't mean you can make a good movie. Sometimes you have to be an asshole to make a good movie, and that's the price people have to pay sometimes. That's all I'm saying but about that. The, um, best de- the best death goes to Doug in the shower. And I wrote, about, I wrote about it for the AV Club a couple years ago when they did the uh, – we did a inventory on the second – Second to final girls, like the people who uh, don't make it to the end, but mostly women. But I wanted to write about Doug because what I like about Doug and, and Joseph Zito has said this is what his intent was. He wanted to subvert the trope of the beautiful woman in the shower in your most vulnerable moment mm. being brutally killed by the murder and by making it who's Doug, who's arguably not the, just the best looking guy, but the best looking person in Friday the 13th, the final chapter. If not the world in 1984. <laughs> and just to have him, like, his face mangled in such a brutal way was uh, to subvert that uh, classic trope that began with Psycho. And what's funny, Mike, is that Joseph Zito himself participates in that trope in The Prowler because it's a memorable shower scene in, in uh Yeah, in that I, think that's a, I think the shower is a big, uh, uh, that's a Zitoism. I like the minorism, and now we got Zitoisms. And it's probably all because all these guys, you know, all these directors, like if you were to rattle off their top five, top ten, Hitchcock is on there somewhere because that's everybody from Mm -hmm. that generation. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, Mm. some great deaths in this movie. What can I say? Let's move on to our next category. You're not going to believe this. It's called the final chapter. No, strike that and keep it all in here. He's still there. Okay, here's, here's something funny for me. Who I, I have always said I'm pretty sure he's dead, right, after part two and three. If I was walking out of this movie, even though it's called the final chapter and all of this other stuff, I'm actually less inclined to believe that he's dead as opposed to how I felt at the end of part two and part three. Hmm. Why? Because at least in part two and two suggests he's dead pretty strongly, if you, if you think that's a dream sequence. And three, we see him literally lying in a barn dead after cops have already been there. I, in this, we see him being hacked up, but then we don't see him after that. That's a good point. With the not seeing, it, it kind of falls into like the whole whatever Game of Thrones thing where it's like, well, yeah. if you didn't see it, it did, you know, he's still you know, alive. Yeah. I don't know. I, I still feel like this is, this is pretty definitive just from that shot of seeing the, 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 the blade go right through his head. Because like, that's why I think it's so funny that they get the production notes to be like, oh, well, if you hit it this way, I don't know. I mean, the fucking machete is literally going right through his head. Like, how do through you his eye, that? through his brain. Yeah, like he, he come also on. just had an axe in his head. Um, a movie like a couple days earlier. You know, that's true. That is true. But but this one like cuts him right, like as they describe, like an avocado in yeah. half. Well, it also really focuses on Tommy taking up the reins. If they were really going to go that route, I, which I, I this may be a controversial opinion, but I absolutely hate that last shot of this movie. Because ah. it's cynical 
And I think if you really were going to make this the final chapter, and I think it does a good job up till that moment, like really kind of giving you, a, it should have ended with Jason's funeral for, for all I <laughs> oh, care. No. Vanderbilt, you know? I know what you wanted. You wanted something like Lisa Zane and Freddie's dead, where they go, they come back up, Jason's dead. No, oh, they should. No, he goes, and that's the final <laughs> chapter. And that's the, and they close a book. Yeah, <laughs> that's a wrap. And that's the final chapter. No, no. I think that I, I hate that ending because it's it's so cynical. Like, oh, this is it, Jason. Because I, Jason is dead at the end of this one. Whether it's the <laughs> final chapter or not, Jason is dead. Well, it opens Anything, up like the though. whole Tipper Gore commentary too, where it's just like, what are you trying? Are you trying to say that like, <laughs> you know, horror begets horror? That like you're gonna that he's influenced by this, that, you know, he came up loving monsters. He got to witness a monster and now he's a monster himself. Like, I think it does open up that sort of commentary, which in my opinion has always been dangerous. Like I, I because I don't agree with that. I mean, I've been worshiping horror my whole life and I don't fucking go yeah. out there and do all this shit. No, so I, I think it, when you think about the next movie though, in terms of how nihilistic it almost is or is oh, or yeah. sleazy it is, it's almost a great tie in to the vibe of a new beginning. <laughs> Which is just straight sleaze and straight darkness and, and uncomfortable human behavior, especially with, with Tommy. But no, I understand where you're coming from. From yeah. the, uh, This movie's coming out at a certain time of, of people really ramping down on what effect this is having in our kids. And do you really want to show a kid going crazy? I, I, get, the, I get where you're coming from. But I still like that freeze frame. It's still freaky. Oh, it's freaky, but I, I hate it as a, an ending to the final chapter. I, disappointing. Mac? I think that, yeah, I, I mean, it's hard for me because I, I watched all these movies so quickly when I was a kid, knowing that, you know, knowing what I know about the next movie and then obviously six, I think it's it was hard for me to, a hard pill to swallow when I knew there were so many more movies I was going to watch because mm. I was just like, well, obviously he's not gone and I know that, but I think they do something interesting with Tommy in the next movie. Um so I, I, we will talk about that, obviously, when we get there. But uh, I don't mind the ending so much. I, I just think it's kind of... I know when I was watching it as a kid, I thought it was kind of silly. Um, I just, you know, I didn't really buy it. I was like, okay, well then... But what's his motive? What, is he just going to be going after serial killers in the future? You know what I mean? There's no, there's no motive for him to be, like, killing kids. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it just seems dumb. So I was like, they didn't really set it up very well if they were going to go down that route because, you know, Jason wasn't insane. He just, you know, he hated kids and camp counselors and especially because they, after the fact, they killed his mother. (laughs) So it's like, you know, they were were invading his woods. Yeah, and like Tommy, it just didn't, they just didn't lay down the the ground. Well, I think what they were also suggesting is that he in some ways... You know, because psychologically he was trying to amp himself up by shaving his head to look like Jason mm-hmm. and become Jason in that way. I think they were trying to suggest that that tied into what actually ended up happening with Jason at the you end. Think that he with had him. like a, a psychotic like, break. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Where he like now. Rec- yeah. Where now but, he's like, I, but I am. The good Jason news is we have hours upon hours to talk about that next month. <laughs> because we'll definitely be talking about that Very true. in the beginning. Jesus. Um, but, uh, you know, I teased this section earlier, but should we, we should get to it. And it's called The Final Chapter. Hey, that's the title of the movie. Put the Leonardo DiCaprio meme up. <laughs> but now, Jason's reign of terror is over. That is the title of this movie. You're right. Friday 13th, The Final Chapter. Nailed it. 
And this is also where we give our final thoughts. So let's start off with uh, my little my little brother, little Tommy, my my own little Tommy Jarvis, <laughs> Mac Gerber. Uh, oh, by the way, scale uh, of uh, know, one to five hockey masks, one to five oh, hockey okay. masks. Yeah, I'm gonna give this one. Uh, oh man, four and a half <laughs> hockey masks with a. Uh, with a, a mask made by Tommy Jarvis as well. I, you know, I, I, I really love this movie. I think it's, it's, it's such a, it's really well balanced. And I do think that they really do something where, yes, that you kind of have the tropes of the kids, but I think that they're pretty fleshed out. Um, you, they, they feel real. You like them, you don't like them. Okay, that's fine. But like, I, I, I do feel like, the family dynamic right next door and that is so well done i like that you have rob coming in from the outside like searching for sandra which is a tie-in to the film i like that they go back to the original idea of jason's look from tom savini's uh makeup idea you know to, to how he looks now to kind of button this whole thing up the effort is there the music's great you still have the great uh uh harry mefredini music and then um I, I just think it, it's it's a solid, solid entry. I, I can't remember what I gave the first one, but I know people were like bewildered that I didn't give it a five. Um, and maybe I give it a four and a half. I don't know. But uh, I feel like this is right up there. I, I do I do really love this film. Uh, it's one of my favorites. And uh, Feldman, obviously. And then just the what, what that would mean for the future of the franchise is, is pretty great seeing that uh, blossom here. And then... Uh, yeah, so I'm gonna give it four and a half uh, hockey masks. Uh, what about you, Mike? You go first, Vanderbilt. Well, I'll say it. This is the quintessential Friday the Thirteenth movie. If you were to put together a time set capsule of the 1980s and you wanted an example of what a Friday the a slasher movie and even more so a Friday the Thirteenth movie looked like, felt like, sound like, smelled like. You would put Friday the 13th, the final chapter in there. I think it's got my favorite opening of all the films. I love the crane shot. I love the production. Yeah, we can talk value. about that. We could talk about that now if you want. That is such a great opening crane it, shot. One I, shot. The crane, and it, the, it's a crane shot that goes into a long, no cut, like uh, uh, one shot, and then brings back. And then they cut a couple times within the tent or in the uh, barn and then do another. They got their money's worth. They did one more crane shot out. And it's very in, touch of evil. Um, yeah. yeah. It. <laughs> and it it just sets that tone of something epic that even if the movie doesn't necessarily deliver on all those notes of something bigger and better. Well, maybe not better. It is probably better. Bigger than the other films. And right into the opening in the hospital where that great camera shot of the with the camera on the gurney and it rolls past the room with the grieving victims that you never... You never find out who they are. They're just there. I mm -hmm. think moving from Steve Miner, who I think is a terrific workman-like director, but was really just kind of getting his feet wet with two and three. Yeah. He was figuring out how to be a filmmaker by hiring, dare I say it, an auteur like Joseph Zito. Because if you watch his films, uh, brutality is his brand. From his mm -hmm. action films like Invasion USA to uh, The Prowler. like These are very brutal films. And I think putting him into a Friday the 13th movie is inspired. And the way he does take uh, 
he respects the previous films. Like, he really wanted the exact shots to match to the back of uh, Friday the 13th Part 3. Uh, having Barney, whether it was his idea or not, Barney Cohen bringing in a character that's avenging his sister's death, whether it makes sense or not. And despite that kind of cynical ending, uh, the movie moves by in an impressive clip. And I think it is, the, like I, uh, to repeat myself, to drive the point home, the perfect, the quintessential Friday the 13th movie. Five hockey masks. Easy. Five Ooh. out of five. Mike Which, Rothman. Well, it, it's funny because I, I, you were uh, c- c- critical of a bunch of uh, parts. Of, so I was surprised by the five. Um, but I, I take I, it very I, seriously, I think. A lot it's because I love just... it so much I can see the flaws within yeah, it. But it doesn't Same. deter from the movie. It's like how I could call Halloween one of the greatest movies of all time, but also not scary in the slightest. But um, anyway... Um, <laughs> that's 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 Rothman Island. I'm not, yeah, I, I'm not I going to touch I'm, that. I'm here on Rothman Island, and I got Wilson, and I'm holding it. Um, well, <laughs> it's 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 orange, just like a jack o' lantern. But I, um, Mike, I th- Mike, I think Wilson's even trying to get away. Yeah, it's <laughs> like uh, he's rolling to his. <laughs> it's the Tobias. Like it's the Tobias yeah, Carl Weathers gif. Um, just like uh, uh, anyway. I, look, I see the original Friday the 13th on another level. I'm always going to. Um, but when it comes to Jason. Uh, and his Friday the 13th, I, I, like what Vanderbilt was saying, there really isn't a stronger entry than the final chapter. And like, we're going to get to Jason Liz in August. And I also consider, and which is also another personal favorite of mine, but like, I think that's on another tier too, because I, I, like, I don't know. I, I think it, I consider that more of a comedy. So final chapter really is like the true distillation of what this franchise could be. I mean, it's scary. It's funny. Um, there's uh, there's ingenuity in every kill. Um, I love the score. The acting is all around on point. Um, like I was saying, just digressing this whole time, I think the characters are real and alive. And Zito, despite being a total nightmare on set, I think he kind of brings a real strong vision that feels both in line with like all the 70s style filmmaking that I talked about in the first episode, and, 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 but also setting the stage for like the 80s wash that would come afterwards. Um, but I also think it's, as I mentioned, like the, the strongest script. I think there are so many characters in this and so many threads. And I think Barney Cohen with the money that was being funneled through Zito <laughs> uh, strings it together. Um, but I agree with Savini. And then I kind of wish this was the end. Um, and it feels like one. Uh, I think everything that comes after this walks, stalks, talks with a tongue in the cheek. Uh, so if you gave up after uh, Jarvis breaking the fourth wall here, I think you do miss some fun misadventures. But I feel like you get the best version of the Camp Crystal Lake urban legend. So this one's a fiver also. Um, five hockey mm. masks. I love the little uh, mask idea that uh, Mac discussed, but I'll leave that to him. Um, a VHS classic <laughs> in the truest sense and a yeah. watermark for horror sequels that's rarely been surpassed in the years since. And if you couldn't tell, I've been reading that. So anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, this, you know, we talked about in the last episode. When I think of Jason the first thing that comes to my mind is Richard Brooker and Friday the 13th Part 3. But when I, and even though I think Friday the 13th, the original, is the superior movie, mm-hmm. when I think of Friday the 13th movies, I think of Friday the 13th, the final chapter. And uh, I, I echo pretty much everything everybody else here said. I think that Joseph Zito does bring something different to this. I think he's a bit more of a seasoned director at this point. The crane shot's great from a film nerdery point of view that I'm always looking at when I'm trying to look at these quote-unquote lesser movies from a, a real you know maybe people are putting a lot of work into these movies folks it's not like they're showing up with cameras and, and saying action well in some cases they are but <laughs> in this particular movie there's some real effort going on here I think Tom Zavini coming back you, you, even if you didn't tell us that Tom Zavini was back 
you would know something was different with the way that the effects are unfolding here and the way that Tommy Jarvis uh, character is uh, being developed throughout the movie and obviously into the next two movies. I love the addition of the family. It does add a little bit more weight to what's going on as opposed to just killing hapless teens. Now you're involving an innocent family next door who's not really following any of those tropes that any character or pretty much every character of the previous three films was carrying with them. Um, I think Ted White does a really great job as, wow, this is the last running Jason until the remake, right? This is it. Because mm-hmm. after this, it's it's the methodical Michael Myers slash otherworldly zombie that we get in, in future entries, for better or worse. Um, in terms of the franchise, I will give it four hockey masks and... Um, not one, but two Tommy Jarvis masks. I'm talking about the alien one hey. and the little uh, and the little uh, the brown monster that we get the POV shot of uh, going back and forth. Um, Justin, may I ask you a serious question though? After Ooh. your rating, please. Is Friday the Thirteenth the final chapter better than Martin Scorsese's The Irishman? Mike Vanderbilt's a great question, and I have an answer for you. Ooh, and you can put it out there. Anybody, aggregators out there, put it out there. Friday the 13th, the final chapter, sets out to achieve something, and it achieves it better than Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Write it down. I'm saying it. It's back. <laughs> Friday the 13th, the final chapter, is a better movie, is a, is a more successful movie than uh, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Hey, I was going to say that. I agree. It's not as good as Casino. It's not as good as Goodfellas. Absolutely not. No way in hell. Better than The Irishman. I agree. What, what about you three? I agree. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, I mean, the Irishman tries to do something, and uh, it doesn't doesn't quite get there. Yeah. So I, I would say that this is a stronger entry into film history. Sorry, Marty. <laughs> Vanderbilt. I would not put have? I would not put the Irishman <laughs> in a time capsule, but I would absolutely put Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter, into one. What yeah. a better what better note to go out on than that? I mean, that's that's a perfect enca- <laughs> that's literally an encapsulation, as it were. Um, everybody, please, if you haven't already, we've received a lot of great reviews and ratings on iTunes and other platforms. And of course, please make sure that you incorporate somewhere in your review um, that this podcast is better than The Irishman. And we do appreciate we've been getting some great reviews noting that. <laughs> And the reviews themselves and star ratings, they, they do actually help us out a lot when we're trying to promote this and get the and get and continue to get the word out there. Um, our next episode will be in July. We'll be celebrating, you know, obviously, the, the 200th and 44th anniversary of this great country of ours by um, covering, well, for the 4th of July, after the 4th of July. Great it's country. Well, that was tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> I'm going tongue in cheek because I'm talking about we're going to be talking about the sleaziest entry of the franchise, <laughs> which is Friday the 13th, a new beginning. So until next time. K- k- k-